optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now it is seen a perfect time. I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably athletic greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and land lovers. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers to tease out the routines, habits, favorite books, quotes they live by, etc., from these folks so that you can test them, implement them in your own life. In this episode, we have Shay Carl, at Shay Carl on the Twitter. That's S-H-A-Y-C-A-R-L who got his first computer at age 27. He was a manual laborer for ages and uploaded his first YouTube video while on break from a granite countertop job. Now let's flash forward to today. His Shaytards YouTube channel now has roughly 2.3 billion views with a B. Celebs like Steven Spielberg have appeared alongside Shay and his family. He has five kids and has been married for, I believe, 13 years. He co-founded Maker Studios, which sold to Disney for nearly $1 billion. And he's also lost more than 100 pounds since his peak of being overweight. And we dig into all of this. Shay came to San Francisco to spend two days with me. We did a bunch of weird stuff together. A lot of firsts for Shay. A Russian bathhouse, acro yoga, etc. And we covered a ton. We actually broke this up into a couple of segments. We covered 
not limited to the following, but including the following, the most important decisions and inflection points in his life, tools of the trade and tips for creating on YouTube, gear as well, favorite books, quotes, etc. that he lives by, stories he's never shared anywhere else before, and much more. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with yours truly and Shay Carl. And just one last caveat. We do get into some religion in this one. And I'm not a particularly religious person, but I've had staunch atheists on this podcast. I find their reasons and reasoning very interesting. And we have had a number of religious people on the podcast, including Shay. And I find the discussion equally interesting. So develop your empathy if you're allergic to that type of thing. And try to listen to this tutorial and take as much as you can possible from it. And with that said, please enjoy. Shay, welcome to the show. Wow. I'm here. Thank you, Tim. It's so great to have you here. And uh, I don't know the best way to introduce you, so I'm just going to read off a couple of bullets because I think your story is so fascinating. All right, so here we go. Bought your first computer in 2007, Dell laptop, when you were 27 years old. Found YouTube while on Blake. On Blake, That's going back to my Japanese roots. <laughs> it actually does happen when I'm tired. I used to live there, so chill out, people. While on break at my manual labor, that's your manual labor, granite countertop job, and you, you've noticed a lot of things about my, my kitchen and house since you've gotten here. So your, your attention to detail is something we'll touch on. I bet I'm the only one who got underneath your kitchen countertops and was looking at how they mounted the sink. <laughs> you are the only. The one <laughs> yes. and only. Uh, you also noticed the, the handrails. Then you posted your very first video on YouTube, August 16th, 2007. That was a big year for me, too. Got your first check from YouTube four months later for 300 bucks. Now I'm gonna, just going to flash forward here. As of this moment, the Shaytards YouTube channel has 4.2 million subscribers that have been watched a combined 2.3 billion times. And you're also one of the dozen co-founders of Maker Studios, which sold to Walt Disney Corp for $1 billion? Yeah, I think they settled on $650 million towards the end, but we can call it $1 billion. Lots of commas. <laughs> Lots of commas. Yeah. Regardless. And uh, what a story, man. I am uh, thrilled to have you here. We met, I guess, first connected on the internet on Twitter, and then met in person unexpectedly for the first time at the White House. That was weird. That was well, weird. Well, we met at a Starbucks is the first place we oh, met. That's right. On because, route. Well, the first way I found out about your podcast is through Joe Rogan. He, I've been a fan of his. I watched Fear Factor. love Joe Rogan. But because my brother is, he has a hunting channel on YouTube called Hush, uh, Hunt and Fish, um, so Joe Rogan is big into hunting and because of that, I started listening to the Joe Rogan podcast or I think I followed him and then he tweeted the Jocko podcast. He's like, you got to check out this Jocko Willick podcast on the Tim Ferriss thing or whatever. I'm like, who's Tim Ferriss? I had heard about the four hour work week because I had a guy that was in church growing up, growing or just like right when I came home from my mission that talked about your book. But I'm like, let me check out this podcast. So I wa or listened to the Jocko podcast and was like amazed not only by him but by you and the you know the people that you've had on your podcast and so we were talking dming through twitter about you know being on the podcast and i was like no way because you asked me to be on your podcast and then you had jamie fox kevin costner like i'm like how am i going to be on this podcast and so finally we linked up and you're like okay let's set a date and then like the next day i got invited to go to the white house to meet with joe biden and then we were meeting with everybody who was going to meet. And I walk in, and it was like such a weird thing because I had just been thinking about you. I'm like, I think that's Tim Ferriss right there. 
that's that's Tim. He's walking over here. Hey, Tim Ferritt, does he know me? <laughs> and it was weird. It was weird to see you after having just communicated about being on the podcast. So I think all things happen for a reason. But that's a cool yeah. first place to meet is the White House. Right? No, it is. It is. Uh, yeah, our first date was at the White House. Now, in fact, one of my coolest Instagram videos ever is you in it when we were about to walk out on the stage with Joe Biden. And I had just luckily pulled out my camera right as the guy's like, and the vice president of the United States of America. And Joe Biden had asked us to walk out on stage with him against the wishes of the Secret Service. Do you remember that moment? I do remember. When Joe Biden's like, I want these people to come come with me. Is that cool? And they're like, well, actually, sir, you have to meet. He's like, that's not what I asked. (laughs) And they're like, yes, sir, you can do whatever you want. You're the vice president. (laughs) So he invited us to walk out on stage with him. And I lucked out and hit record on the Instagram video right as they're announcing the vice president of the United States of America. And then we go walking out with him and you're in that Instagram video has like 200,000 views on it. So that's a very monumental uh, Instagram video for me to have been announced by the president. And then we walked out together. So you have seemed to have lived many lives in one. And I'd like to start at the very, very beginning. If you can talk about it, Shay Carl, what's the story behind your name. So my name is my name. I am Shay Carl Butler. That's my full mm-hmm. name. My dad's name is Carl Scott Butler. And when I very first found the internet, the very first interaction I had on the internet was to get a Hotmail email account. And for some reason, I think it's because of college. When you, when I went to ISU, Idaho State University in southeastern Idaho, go Bengals, um, you had to like have a student login, right? And it was like your first letter of your first name and then like the last four letters of your last name. So I always kind of figured that's how you had to name yourself on the internet is just like your name. So I'm like, I'll just call myself Shay Carl. That's my first and middle name. And I just kind of push them together. Shay Carl at Hotmail. Do not email me. I do not check that email anymore. Um, and that was my very first account, Carl at Hotmail.com. So when I started my YouTube channel, I thought, well, I don't know what a good username is. Maybe I'll just use my email name. You know, Shay Carl, that's my name. Why not? So that was my very first, uh, you know, moniker on the internet was youtube.com slash Shay Carl. And that's my very first YouTube channel that I started in 2007 on a little $500 Dell laptop that I bought at 27 because I figured I'm an adult now. I should get a computer and do adult things. And so, yeah, it was, you know, not... And I say this too about Shaytards, the main channel that we have. It wasn't my best marketing decision. It was all kind of like discovery as it happened, right? I didn't think like, oh, I'm going to have 4.3 million subscribers one day. What's a good name to have? I just thought, I want to make a video. I have some things to say. So yeah, Shay Carl is that's my first and middle name. <laughs> so it's funny with these first forays into digital worlds, or really any type of <clears throat> business world, even though you might not recognize it as such at the time is the implications of those first handles. So I remember hearing, and I don't know if this is the handle any longer, but Travis Kalanick, co-founder of Uber, <clears throat> when he got on Twitter, like a lot of people were like, ah, this Twitter thing, whatever, like I'll just make up a username. So it was T-Bone Kona, I think <laughs> it was his username. And for years and years and years, he, he, he had to stick with it or he chose to stick with it. I think it's changed since. Uh, but if we go back to your childhood, you were, you, you were raised Mormon, is that correct? Correct. Yeah, my so my grandfather, Colonel Eugene Haynes Butler, he was uh, in the United States Air Force, uh, told us many stories about Vietnam and napalm. 
and the power of that that gas. <laughs> um, he was born just Christian and was kind of searching for something and was in Germany, stationed in Germany, I can't remember what year, but ended up finding some Mormon missionaries there. Um, the name of the church is officially the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day, Latter-day Saints, Saints, but the nickname Mormons comes from the Book of Mormon, which, thanks to Trey and Matt, have uh, popularized that book quite a bit. Um, if you've heard about the play on Broadway, The Book of Mormon. Um, so, you know, that's kind of like a nickname, the Mormons. But yeah, I was raised because my grandpa was baptized in Germany and started practicing, and then he raised his family, my dad, um, specifically in the church. And then I was as well. I was born in Logan, Utah, uh, 1980, March 5th, 1980, Pisces, as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In fact, I was born in the hospital that was 50 feet across the street from the Mormon temple, the Logan, Utah temple. And um, yeah, kind of was raised in that, um, going to scouts, going to church. You know, we weren't super... You know, like mom and dad, if there was like a, a playoff game, if the Jazz were playing, we might miss, you know. But um, <laughs> we definitely win. And I don't, you know, it's so hard in hindsight to think about your childhood because you have such a skewed perspective of it. And it's weird to look back on it later. But I felt like my parents weren't super passionate about it. They were, they knew it was right. And I feel like they felt an obligation as parents to do what was right for your kids. And that was to go to church. And in many ways, I'm very grateful um, because there was so much that I learned. You know, Ron Campbell, for instance, was my young men's president, like from the age of like 12 to 16 in the Mormon church, you're, you know, you're in this thing called young men's. And he was like a pillar of like who I wanted to become in life. Like there are men like that, that I have met through the Mormon church that I have been like, I want to be like that guy. 12 to 16 is a really important period. Very much so. So yeah. what could you explain the, the organization first of all? Well, and- it's all okay. So like in the church, um, you know, we believe that you can receive the power of God, which is called the priesthood. And, you know, it might be from any, you know, church that you, you go, you kind of, you know, you reach certain levels. So at 12 years old, you receive the Aaronic priesthood. And when you receive that, then you can do things like service. The priesthood of God, we believe, is only for the service of men. So The uh, Aaronic priesthood? Yeah, it's like the priesthood of Aaron from the uh, Old Testament. Got it. I think, yeah, I was misspelling it incorrectly in my head. Okay. It's not ironic. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> silly. Um, yeah, the priesthood of Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood. But... um at that early age, you start you know, serve the sacrament, like the bread and water, to remember Christ and his body and his sacrifice. And then, you know, there's specific things that it says that you can do, which is like to bless the sick. And basically, it's an organization, you know, I, don't, I can't go through all like the, you know, the setup of it. But, you know, every Sunday we have church and and the, there's three hours. Mormon church is three hours. The first hour is what... Sh- what is called the sacrament meeting where all the congregation meets together. And the main purpose of that meeting is to remember Christ, to have the bread, have the water. And there's no paid ministry in the church. Everybody's volunteer. So the bishop of the ward or what you might know as like the priest or the whatever, the guy who's up at the pulpit in charge, he's a volunteer. Um, He might be a dentist or an accountant or whatever. And he has a calling to serve in the bishopric for anywhere from three to five years. And then he's released, and then he becomes a regular member of the church. So there's different teachers. And for the 12 to 16-year-olds, you know, there's what's called, you know, we call it young men's president. 
And we had a guy named Ron Campbell who was our, like, he was an older man who had a business. And for one hour, the, the young men would meet with him and we'd have lessons. One hour per week. Yeah, every Sunday. And then there was also a thing called Mutual, which is like on Tuesday nights, we would meet at seven o'clock and do different activities. A lot of times we'd just play basketball at the church, which was our favorite activity. But um, it was all very interrelated to scouts, the scouting program, um, Boy Scouts of America specifically. And that's not uh, affiliated with the Mormon church, but the Mormon church sees a lot of value, I think, in the Boy Scouts program. And so it's very ingrained in the culture to get your Eagle Scout. I remember hearing like, when you go for a job interview one day and it's between you and another guy and you have your Eagle Scout, you're the one that's going to get the job. And so that became a big priority growing up. Like you got to get your Eagle. And that was, you know, advancing through tenderfoot, first class, second class, all the way up until you received your Eagle Scout, which, you know, you had to do this big project at the end of it. That was kind of like the final test to becoming an Eagle Scout is you had to organize this giant service project. And so just through those years, those, you know, like you said, those influential years from 12 to 16, I had, you know, some very real motivating people in my life that were saying, hey, pay attention, like these decisions that you make matter. You know, you need to, you know, begin with the end in mind in a sense where um, you need to think about what your decisions do right now. In fact, early on, I remember talking about in these weekly meetings about making good choices in life and about not making the choice when it happens, but making the choice right now. Right. I remember being in those lessons. It's like, make the decision right now so that when you're faced with it, you've already made that decision. And I think that's just general good advice as far as thinking about an eternal perspective, right? Like try to suck out of your life where you're in your mind so much what i mean by suck out is like pull out like (laughs) elevate where you're looking down become a third party or observer of your own thoughts of your own actions um you know and that sometimes i think helps me live in the now Mm -hmm. where you're concerned about yesterday and you're worried about tomorrow if i'm able to kind of like step out of my body in a sense and look at myself as my own devil's advocate and be honest you know, uh, because a lot of us, I think, are not honest with ourselves. We lie to ourselves. We, like, maybe sometimes we're honest. Like, there, we know that there's something that we're struggling with, and we don't want to stop that thing, or we don't want to admit that we have that weakness. And so even within our own psyche, even with our own minds, we're unable to be like, hey, Shay, I'm talking to you, bro. Shay, you should maybe consider this, you know? And so I think... To me, that's what religion does. And people might be like, how is that, Shay? Is I I I guess I to really explain it, I have to tell the entire belief system that I have, but it's basically that we lived before we were born and that we were conscious spirits that knew that we were gonna come to this earth, that knew that this was gonna be a testing ground, that knew that we were gonna be paired up with a physical body. I believe our spirits are a real thing. I believe that our spirits are just a finer matter. Um, that can mesh with denser matter, like our bodies, our bones, our tissue. And that when we die, those spirits separate from our bodies. And then the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we will be resurrected and that that spirit will then again mesh with an eternal, uncorruptible, physical being of bone and flesh. And so thinking about that, 
it's helped me make life decisions where I'm like, well, I'm not just thinking about what does that girl think about me or do I look cool in these shoes? I'm thinking, you know, I'm going somewhere. I came from someplace and I'm, I'm going to go somewhere someday. So I need to think about every single decision I make, every thought that I have with that kind of plan in mind. Well, I think it has, it, I think it has a sort of built in long-term perspective, right? And the one of the things that I'd like to underscore that you just mentioned is deciding how you're going to react before you have to react. In other words, uh, this is very much along the lines of something I remember hearing from Tony Robbins, who was talking about marriage and fidelity and so on. And he said, you can't just have faith in your relationship and assume you're always going to respond in the best interest of your relationship. You have to decide what types of temptations are going to exist, what, what the exact situations are that might present themselves, and decide in advance how you're going to respond in those exact circumstances, as opposed to just crossing your fingers and hoping that it's all smooth sailing. Right. And uh, so I want to talk about a, a transitionary period. Uh, maybe it's a transitionary period, but so 19 to 21. Actually, before I get there, I forgot to, to follow up on Mr. Campbell. So were there any specific things that he taught you or specific characteristics that he had that made you want to model him? Yes. Um, the best way to describe it is like, imagine Santa Claus. Imagine sitting down and hanging out with Santa Claus, right? Santa Claus is a wise soul who's seen a thing or two. And he's generous, right? He's super, like nothing gets under Santa Claus's skin. To me, that's what Ron Campbell was. The guy could tell a story first of all, like he was raised on a farm and he would tell us story after story of moving pipe. If you've ever been on a farm, you know that you got to move the pipe to water the crops. And so there's, you know, these 20 foot long steel pipes with the water runs through that you have to pick up and move, you know, 10 to 20 feet over to the next furrow where the water didn't reach. Right. And so he would just tell us these random stories of moving pipe and like, guys that he worked with on the farm, like racing across, like who could move pipe the fastest. And he just had this ability to captivate us boys, right? And, and you know, there's always lessons in the Mormon church. If you go to any Mormon church in the world tomorrow or on Sunday, you'll have the exact same lesson if you're in Ethiopia or if you're in Salt Lake or if you're in Atlanta or Guatemala. All the curriculum for the 16 million members of the church is exactly the same. Really? Yeah. So it's like when I first moved to L.A., all I of had my no Los idea. Angeles friends were like, did you find a church you like? And it's like, oh, we just went to the one that's in our geographical boundary because the church is all broken up into geographical areas. So it's like if you live from in between Main Street and Center Street, then you're in this ward. And so anywhere in the world you can go, the curriculum is exactly the same anywhere. Main Street and Center Street. This is another thing that made me think of some of my trips to Idaho and, and Utah, just the way that the city is right. laid out itself. Salt Lake specifically, Brigham Young set it up so it's like easy. It's like first, second, third. So I can just tell you an address and you can immediately find it just if you can know how to count, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so... Where, where were we going? We were talking that? about Campbell and his ability to captivate. All right, tell stories. And um, and he was just such a generous guy. Like he would do things like we would go on these high adventures and he would do, he was a successful businessman 
So he would be like, let's buy a, a parasail because he had a water ski boat, right? Mm-hmm. So for one of our outings, he bought this parasail that you hook up to a back of a boat and then you mm-hmm. get a harness in and then you yep. hit and you go above the boat. But he had no idea how to work it. Mm-hmm. So he had us and all of the scouts trying to figure out how to work this parasail. And for the first four times, we had it upside down. We we're like <laughs> dragging people into the ground because the parasail was flipped around. <laughs> And finally, we're like, what if we flipped it over? And sure enough, we popped up just like that. But he was the kind of guy that's like, here's the jet skis. Here's the parasail. Go have fun. Yeah. And don't break anything, which we always did. And when we lost his water ski rope, he was cool with it. He was just a guy that was, like I said, like Santa Claus, that was, had wisdom, that was forgiving, that was kind, but you know, also knew that you had to work hard, that you had to apply yourself, that you had to make good decisions, that you had to have a purposeful definition of what you want your life to be. Just like you were talking about Tony Robbins. I know what I want my marriage to be like. I also know that I'm a dude who thinks chicks are hot, right? (laughs) So it's like, how am I going to be married to this one girl forever if I like to look at other girls' boobs? And not like I, I'm not that kind of guy, but I'm just saying, dudes, if you're honest and you see a nice pair of boobs out there, you're going to glance at them. So how do I consciously think about that right now and make a decision to turn away or maybe to like appreciate that nice set of cleavage that you got, but I don't have to stare at it. I don't have to like oogle, ogle over it or something, you yeah. know? So I'm a huge believer in you can literally do anything you want if you create it in your mind first. Mm-hmm. I love James Allen. Um, the uh, As a Man Thinketh is one of my favorite books where I think we so undervalue the power of thought. Every single thing in human existence was a thought first. Mm-hmm. These microphones, this couch, anything we enjoy in the natural, you know, things that are amazing, the Hyperloop, Elon Musk is landing rockets in the ocean. He had an idea to do that first. So if you're going to be naive to the fact that you can think about bad things and not do bad things, you're, gonna, you're in for a lot of pain in your life. You have to control your mind. You have to control... Meaning if you're, if you're running on the fuel of negative thinking, that will manifest itself totally. externally. And people think that's mumbo-jumbo. The power of thought, um, what the secret... Mm-hmm. All that kind of stuff where it's like, oh, come on, give me some real, like, what can, what are some real tips and tricks? To me, it's the, it's the cliches. Um, I'll side note real quick. When I was exercising and losing weight, I was 280 pounds. I decided to run the Los Angeles Marathon. I lost 100 pounds and I ran the Los Angeles Marathon and I've since run four other marathons. So when I was doing that, because I'm a YouTuber, because I have a big audience that watches my videos, as I was losing this weight, as a YouTuber, you're constantly thinking of like, how can I tell my audience about this? I had, I think at the point I had lost like 40 pounds. I was riding my bike up and down the Santa Monica Pier every day or the boardwalk there from Venice to Santa Monica. And I had lost like 40 or 50 pounds just riding my bike every day, drinking a lot of water, eating fruits and vegetables, all that stuff that's like, if you're going to lose weight, what do you do? You exercise, you eat right, you get good sleep, you drink water. And I was doing all that and I had lost 50 pounds. And so one bike ride one day, I'm like, what am I going to tell my audience? Like, I'm excited to make a video to tell people like, guys, I just hit 50 pounds. And I'm like, what can I say? I'm like, well, what have I been doing? I've been exercising. I've been reading like health books. I've been eating fruits and vegetables. And I'm like, I can't say that. If I make a video and tell people to do that, they'll be like, oh, those are just cliches. But I was like, well, that's what's working. That's what I'm doing. And so I, on this bike ride, I remember exactly where I was. I thought to myself, the secrets to life 
are hidden behind the word cliche. So anytime that you hear a thing that you think is a cliche, my tip to you is to perk your ears up and listen more carefully. Because the second that a cliche is being spoken, a truth is being spoken. Now, there can be cliches and other things too, but it's so simple that we make it too difficult. Yeah. Like think happy thoughts, mm-hmm. then you'll be happy. And most people are like, bullshit, that's not, that can't happen. I'm like, yeah, it's not going to work for you because you got a shitty attitude. Yeah. But, you know, if you can just mentally strengthen yourself, if you can mentally say, this is the life I want, this is the kind of person I want to be, really be this kind of person. There's a doctrine in my church that, that teaches that when we die, we're not going to communicate with these words anymore. I'm going to be able to know exactly what's in your mind. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to hide anything from me, for instance. So you got to clean it up before yeah, you Yeah, you got to get ready switch. now <laughs> because you're going to meet some people for the very first time that you've known your entire life. Like think yeah. about meeting somebody in a, in a realm where you know all of their intentions. You know exactly how they feel. That's going to be a different person to you, right? So the goal in this earth life is to become that person who you say you are right mm-hmm. now. Um, because I believe, whether you believe in God or not, like that's going to happen. Like, isn't a text message just me sending you a thought? I'm just like adding some letters and shooting it through the air. Eventually, I believe, you know, and we can get into this too with technology, that we'll be able to just, you know, t- telepathy will be a real thing where we, you, you know, okay, for instance, NDEs, near-death experiences. You get on the internet, you just type in NDE or you look up near-death experiences, a majority of those people say that when they died or they were on the other side, they felt that this Christ-like person or this God person or whoever it was knew them. They could not hide a single solitary thing. Like They just knew every single thing about them. So hearing that and reading about that, I'm like, well, I better get my stuff together now and, and really be that person because eventually you're going to have to be and you're not going to be able to hide anything. And I think that's what the internet's doing. I think, especially with the election, you know, like the presidential election, it's like, we see who these people are, right? Like, you yeah. can't hide. Remember back when Clinton was running and he's like, I didn't inhale. Yeah. You know, he talked about marijuana. It's like, so that's okay. You just put pot smoke in your mouth, you know? But it's like, think about where we're at today. Like, if somebody's like, like Obama at his recent uh, White House correspondents did or made a joke about being high in, in college. Well, I haven't been this high since college. Yeah, right? it was since or I was deciding my, my major. Yeah, that's right, yeah. deciding my major. Yeah. So it's like, how have we gone from, you know, like, oh, Bill Clinton smoked marijuana to we're just more transparent now, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a good thing. Um, the internet, I've said this before, is making the world a glass ball where we can see each other. Um, you know, these leaders in countries in the corner of the earth have been able to do horrible things to their people for decades. But now that we have the internet, we're like, hey, wait a minute, you can't do that. And because of that, we have to be more honest mm-hmm. as a society, as individuals. And and that comes into question too with what I do with my daily vlogging. Like, is it safe? Um, is it, you know, sociologically responsible to put so much of your life on the internet. Um, but I just, I guess, um, on that tangent is really becoming the person who you say you are and think about what if everybody knew all of your thoughts? Yeah. I saw this billboard, uh, this billboard in New York city that said, be the person your dog thinks you are. There's a saying that I've heard about, 
you can tell the character of a man by how his dog and his kids react to him. Because dogs and kids are honest, right? So if you know somebody who's their dog is afraid of them and their kids are afraid of them, you know their character. Yeah. You know, so that's a little aspect of becoming really who you say you are because Mm -hmm. dogs and kids know who you really are. So I want to ask a question about sort of behavioral modification and thought control in a sense. Let's say that you wake up on a given morning and you're not feeling like your your usual optimistic self. For whatever reason, you're just in a pissy mood and uh, things are looking a little darker around the edges. What do you do to correct that? What do you, what's the internal dialogue? What are the rituals? Right. Because that happens. You know, and I'm known on the internet uh, for saying happiness is a choice. Like you can choose to be happy. And that's actually something that I've learned through vlogging, where because I've said I'm going to make a video every single day for a year. When I turned 29 years old, this is kind of like how I really got my internet following is I came out and I said, I'm going to do a daily vlog, 365 videos. How far after your first video was that? That was, I guess, two years? It was about a year and a half. A year and a half in. You know, and like when I very first started YouTube in 2007, it was just like, well, I have a video. Let me upload that and see how it does. What was the first video? The very first video I uploaded, you can go on my Shay Carl channel. It's actually, um, now that I think about it, it's me and my brother and my brother-in-law singing happy birthday to my mom after sucking helium balloons. (laughs) We all like doused, like downed three helium balloons and then saying happy 50th birthday to my mom. I think that was the very first one. But the real first video, I think, is me dancing around in a unitard. My wife had this old unitard that I had found. And I come out into the living room like, look what I found. And we had this little digital camera. And she just thought it would be funny to pick it up and turn it onto the video mode and and record me doing this as almost like blackmail material. (laughs) And then when I found out about YouTube, I was like, what videos do I have? I'm like, oh, yeah, Colette has that blackmail video of me in a unitard. I'm going to put that on the internet. (laughs) Now, what was your your job at the time? At the time, I was a granite counter fabricator. So I know we're bouncing around, but... What possessed you to put to record and put that video up? In other words, have you always been a performer since a young age? Yeah, or- I was definitely a class clown type. Um, and you know, I it's so funny your your story comes back to you as you live more of your life. But there's my grandpa had this old VHS camcorder, and I used to always love to film people with that thing. I'd throw in a VHS tape into the side just like oh, a VCR, yeah. put that thing on my shoulder like I was working at the news channel and I would just film around the house. And I still haven't done this, but I know there are hours of like times where I have the camera in my mom's face and she's like putting her hand in the lens saying, turn the camera off, Shay, like so annoyed that I'm just filming her when she's pissed off. <laughs> so I want to go make a montage where I take all of that and it's just like, turn the camera off, turn the camera off. Um, so yeah, my dad always used to say that I should be a lawyer because I was good at arguing. I just, I've always liked to talk, I guess. And I've always, uh, you know, I guess I have been that class clown type. So when YouTube came along, I was like, I can do that. Yeah. I can talk like that. The first guy I found was Philip DeFranco. Yeah, who, yeah sure. Maybe you know Phil. He yeah. was, he's been on Joe Rogan's podcast. Um, he kind of really got me into the world of YouTube. And I, I watched Phil's, like when I first found How him. How old like, was he at the time? Maybe he was he's, young. He's, he's, like just, he's like the baby-faced assassin. But. No, he's so young. And I'm like, this kid, that's what I remember thinking. I'm like, he's a kid who has a TV show type thing. I'm doing air quotes here. 
um, that has 60,000 people that subscribe to it. And for all that I can tell, he's doing this all by himself. And he had like that iMovie intro music, you know, like he had made this little intro where he acted like he was picking up a phone. And how did you meet? How did you meet him? So I found Philip DeFranco the first night I ever got on YouTube. I got this computer. I got it set up. It was bedtime. My wife's going to bed. And I'm like, I'm just going to get on the internet here. I found Philip DeFranco that night. And I was like, oh, there's like people that are hanging out here talking. And so I just subscribed to him that first night. After, And I'm like, I can talk like him. Right after that, maybe... Two or three days later, he came out with a video called How to Get a Popular Online Show or Series. Then he had a contest where he wanted his audience to submit videos, and then he was going to pick his favorite three, and then those three were going to get voted on in the website, and then he would promote that person to help them get more subscribers. So at the time, I was doing granite countertops, but I was also a radio DJ in the sense that I was calling into the radio studio every morning when they did trivia and just trying to get on the radio <laughs> i would call in and just annoy the djs and i would just hit redial 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 and i would get through at least once every morning so, so i have to stop for a second so my sport when i've never i don't think i've told anybody this my sport when i had my sh- uh, pretty f- shitty i mean just in terms of like draining first job out of college when I was commuting in my my mom's hand me down minivan, you know, with the seat that the seats got stolen from, it was so depressing. Uh, I would listen to, I think it was Sirius Radio, and I would call in the entire commute when I was stuck in traffic on one hundred and one, trying nice. to do the exact same thing, yep. just trying to get on the radio. <laughs> and it was cool to me, just like the conversation, right? Like you're in your car, you're listening to these guys talk. And I think everybody in their car does that where they're like, well, I have something to say about this, but nobody thinks to call in and try to like become part of the conversation. And the reason I did that is because we were on the job. Like we were the granite guys in the shop, you know, polishing granite. We had the radio on. So every morning at 10 a.m. when they did the trivia, we'd all be like, call into the radio station. And I got through so many times that they gave me a nickname. And (laughs) the program director of the radio, he said, listen, if you stop calling in in the mornings, I'll give you your own segment on Saturdays. (laughs) And so I got to my very first... What was your nickname? So, well, (laughs) okay. So the trivia... Um, it was called The Answer's Never Dirty. So the the trivia question would be like, 20% of women like this in bed. And you'd be like, oh, what is it? But the answer would be like silk sheets or something that wasn't dirty. But the an- the question always sounded dirty. So you never knew what the right answer was on the first, you know, when they ask the question, it's like you guess and they give you hints and then slowly like people will get the right answer. So the first guess was always a total guess. So one day we called in and we just said croquet. We thought, and I thought like croquet would be funny as the answer, like the sport of croquet, because who knows what the answer is. And so then every morning, we just thought it'd be funny if we altered it about croquet something. So like the question might be like, 30% of dudes said they like this before going on dates. And I would call in and be like, um, is it read croquet weekly? You know, just like some stupid thing about the game of croquet. Wickets? Yeah, you know. And so they started calling me croquet Shay. It's like, oh, croquet Shay's on the line again. And it was just this random enough thing that I did enough where I got this name called Croquet Shea. And then two of the DJs were annoyed by me. So the program director's like, listen, we'll give you your own gig as a judge. We have they, to keep the animals separate. Yeah, that's like, you got to quit calling in. 
But they had another segment called Doghouse Wednesday where couples would call in and say why they were in trouble with their significant others. And he said, I'll give you a job as one of the judges who gets to talk for like 90 seconds on the radio and explain why they thought which person was in the deepest doghouse, right? So that was like my very first gig in the entertainment world. And at the time, I still had a job at the Granite Counter business. So like every Fridays or whenever they did the doghouse thing, I would have to like go out and hide. <laughs> and like my, I had to hide from my boss while I was on the radio. I'd be like, I'm going to go on the radio. And like all of my coworkers knew. And it, it became this weird thing. Anyway, so then that's how I got into radio. I was a judge on Doghouse Wednesday, did well on that. And then when a weekend spot from the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday weekend position for the DJ was opened... The program director, Brad, is like, hey, do you want this job? It only pays eight fifty an hour, but you can be on the radio four hours a night. And I was like, yes. And I would have to drive th- like an hour round trip, 30 minutes to the studio, 30 minutes back to get paid $32. And gas was like 20 or whatever just to be on the radio. And so that was my first you know, session into entertainment. And this goes back to the question. And so you were you like 28? I was, yep, about 28. 28 and a half. Got it. When I was a DJ at Z103, Idaho's number one hit music channel. Coming up next, we got Purpose by Justin Bieber. Uh, so I did that for a while. And I loved doing that. I loved... My favorite thing was being the guy on Friday nights at 5 p.m. when it's like, guess what, bitches? It's the weekend. Yeah. Come on. What are you going to do this weekend? And I was like the, the party guy. I was the rally behind it's the weekend and it's time to have a good time because I had just come from that... Not, you know, I was working from 6 a.m. to 6 at night at the granite shop. I was working 12 hours a day, Monday through Friday, knowing what it felt like to celebrate Friday afternoons and then to detest Monday mornings. So, all right. So, on the detesting point, we were, I I took us off the reservation, which was great because that was a fantastic story on thought control or improving happiness by way of choice. And you said you learned that through daily vlogging. Yes. So like being a radio DJ, when you get on the mic, you got to have some level of, you know, enthusiasm, right? You can't be like, hey, Idaho's number one hit music channel. Check out this new song. You know, like that's going to be boring. Nobody's going to listen to that. So, right. Waking up as a human being, sometimes I'm in a bad mood. Sometimes I'm frustrated. Sometimes I feel like crap. And for whatever reason, we all go through it. We all wake up feeling like total crap and like you hate everybody. Like, screw it. I don't care. You want to burn everything down. Like, I feel that too. Like, I want to tear everything up and punch people. Like, I have that anger inside of me as well. I think some people are like, oh, well, it's easy for you. It's not. I think people don't realize that everybody suffers, whether, you know, some people put on a better show than others. It depends. But what I found is knowing that I had to do a daily vlog, knowing that I had to like vlog myself, even in those bad moods, I found myself turning the camera. <laughs> Sounds a lot like vlog. You had to I, vlog, yeah, you had to vlog yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's very painful. No, I would, I would, you know, sit up straight. I would take a deep breath. I would smile and I would turn the camera on and be like, Hey guys, what's going on? Shay, ba 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 da da. And whatever I did, I would turn the camera off, and then all of a sudden, I would feel better. That's and, a really, that's a really cool point. And not just like I feel better, but physiologically, I could feel my body was different. And there's studies that if you sit up straight, if you de- if you breathe deep, if you smile, if you just, I have a thing where like I'll just look in the mirror, and this might sound really crazy. I'll just look in the mirror and just like laugh at myself. And, and almost break down this wall of um, being so pretentious about not being able to be silly, 
you know, I think there's a great power in being silly. I think there's a great power in not taking things so seriously. And so by just sitting up straight, putting a smile on my face and kind of faking it till you make it, you actually do feel better. There's real power in this. And there's, and there's research to support that too. There are right. studies to support it. There's a, there's a great Ted talk on blanking on the woman's name, blonde hair, short kind of Bob haircut who talks about posture and looking at self-reported, uh, sort of averages of say well-being and so on, which would correlate to this. Uh, quick side note on being silly, because I think you're very good not only at improving your own mood, but improving other people's moods around you. So everybody should go to twitter.com forward slash Shay Carl and look at the profile pic. And now, with that in mind, I'm going to segue to what happens at the TSA when you show them your ID? Because I've <laughs> seen, actually, I've yeah, seen I it. You, you showed me. License, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so, funny story. Uh, me and my buddy Kasim G, who's a comedian on the internet and not uh, a chipper guy. He's like one of my friends who just hates going in public with me because I like to talk to everybody and try to make people <laughs> laugh. And he's... I found that comedians are darker people, you know? Yeah, it's very, very typical. I it's, think uh, comedians, cartoonists, uh, right. writers, less so, but still a fair percentage. It's like they use their comedy to kind of, it's like uh, a therapy for some, you know, other deep things that they're dealing with. I don't know. I'm not trying to psychoanalyze comedians, but that's his type, right? Like he doesn't like people. He doesn't like anything, but um, he likes motorcycles and like cars and stuff. So... We got some deal with Harley Davidson, who's like, hey, we want to pay for you guys to go through motorcycle school. We're going to give you motorcycles. We're going to give you motorcycle jackets. And because we're social influencers, like, there was no money exchange. It was just like, you're cool. We're cool. You ride our bikes and you know, tweet a picture every once in a while. Me and Cassim were like, sweet. So we went through this two-week motorcycle training course. We got our motorcycle licenses. We went to the, the California DMV, which is never a pleasant experience. <laughs> and... Finally, because you were living in LA? Yeah, I was living in Venice Beach at the time. And um, so finally we take the test, all that stuff. It's me and Cassim. This is our final thing till we get our motorcycle licenses and we can actually go out and ride. And it's time for the picture, right? So Cassim's standing there. And as, right as I go up to take the picture, he goes, don't do anything stupid. <laughs> like, <laughs> knowing that I'm going to, right? And I can actually, maybe we can scan my license because my license is a sure. better Yeah, we'll put, we'll, we'll, put it. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll blur out anything that needs blurring and right. then uh, we'll put it in the show notes. So I did this crazy face, just like, he's like, smile. And I'm just like, like deer in the headlights, smile, giant eyeballs, knowing that they're going to make me retake it. Like it's the DMV, right? Like you can't smile. You can't do anything in the DMV. You have to have this like, I'm a serial killer look on your face for them to identify you apparently. Like what people don't smile in real life. So I do this and the guy laughs. The guy thought it was funny and he prints out my ID and he hands it to me. And I'm like, wait, you're gonna let me keep this? And he's like, yeah, it's funny. And I'm like, are you serious? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, oh my heck. So my license <laughs> oh my picture heck. is me like, ha. <laughs> and so I was telling Tim the story when we were at the White House. Without fail, you could give me the grumpiest, meanest TSA agent in the world at five in the morning who's taking IDs, that's doing it all day long. And I, 99% of the time, can get them to laugh because they'll look at that picture and they're like, holy shit. Like, you can see them in their mind too. Like they look at it and it's so different from all of the other pictures that they are just staring at all day long. They'll either one smile right away when they look at the picture, 
or two, if they don't smile when they look at the picture, when they look up, you know, like they to match do, it to like identify you. If I'm doing the exact same face as I am in the picture, <laughs> 99 out of 100 times, I can get every single grumpy TSA agent in the world to laugh or at least crack a smile because especially at five in the morning and there's there's days where I don't feel like you know being that guy and they're like is this you and I'll have to be like eh, and do the face and they're like it's you so <laughs> the the photo looks like if, if people are not going to make it to the show notes or the, the Twitter profile it looks kind of like a ventriloquist's puppet I would say <laughs> it is a pretty close approximation but uh so the daily vlogging, in addition to serving as therapy or just a proof of concept showing you that you can change how you feel, uh, it seems like, I mean, you alluded to it earlier, that was, was that the breakthrough? I mean, was there, when did you realize that this could be more than a hobby? So I guess, you know, early on, when I was, you know, trying to make ends meet, my sole purpose was to make money. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that's what college was. To me, it was like you went to college so that you could take enough classes so you could get a piece of paper that said that you were responsible enough to get some stuff done uh, and then that you could work. You know what I'm saying? So to me, it was all about like, how do I make money? How do I provide for my wife and kids? How do I you know, make this a a thing. So yeah, like the first time I figured that like YouTube was going to be an actual career is like the first paycheck I got. Um, And when I started YouTube, I didn't know you could make money. At first, it was just about the conversation, just about connecting with people. So, you know, after like two or three months of making videos, I got my first check for 300 bucks and I was shocked. I could not believe that I actually got paid for just being silly, for just, you know, thinking of ideas or you know, weird skits that I was doing. And I remember the first time I got that money, I went down to the bank because I thought it was a scam, honestly. I thought, I'm like, I don't know YouTube. I don't know who Google is. And they did that whole thing where they deposit 11 cents in your account. And then you go to the website and you verify, yes, you put 11 cents in my account. And then your bank account's linked. So I was so scared to even link my bank account with my Google AdSense, which is how you get paid because Google owns YouTube. So I was like, they're going to steal all the money out of our account. But then I was like, well, we only have $150 in there anyway, so it won't matter if they steal it. So the very first time I got paid from YouTube, I remember seeing the money in the Wells Fargo, like maybe I shouldn't say which bank I have. I remember seeing the money in my bank account and I remember going down that day to the bank to withdraw the cash because I was like, if they give me the money, then that's real. So I remember the transaction going to the bank saying, I would like to withdraw that $300, almost like sheepishly, like there's going to be snipers on the roof. They gave me the $300 cash. I walked out of the bank and I'm like, what? This is real money. I could buy groceries with this. So from that moment on, it became how can I turn this into grocery money into mortgage money? And that was my next goal. I want to make a thousand grocery money to mortgage money. Yeah. I want to be able to pay my house payment with this money from YouTube. And if I could pay my mortgage, which at the time was like 980 bucks a month, if I can make a thousand dollars a month on YouTube, that would free up so much time where I could be with my family or do other things. And so that, what, that's what, where it started. It was the pursuit of, making this hobby just like anybody who starts something from their garage into a full-time thing. And how did you, what were the decisions you made or the changes you made 
that helped you go from grocery money to mortgage money? So it was more videos, um, to be frank. Like to the the simple answer was more Volume. videos means more views means more money. And so just education on YouTube, you don't get paid on your subscribers. So it doesn't matter. You could have 10 billion subscribers. If nobody watches your videos, you don't make a dime. It's all based on how many views you get. So they call it CPM, cost per mil. And I think that is Latin for thousand. Um, so every thousand views, you average anywhere from two to five bucks. So imagine that. Like if I said, here, take this cup and go show it to a thousand people and I'll give you $3. You'd be like, screw you. I'm not doing that. That's not worth my opportunity cost. But if you have 8 billion potential customers, everybody on the earth, which everybody doesn't have the internet yet, but you can easily rack up some money if you get a lot of people to start watching these videos. So when I turned 29 years old, March 5th, 2009, it was the last year of my 20s. And I went through this like pre-midlife, midlife crisis where I'm like... Quarter-life crisis. Yeah, quarter-life crisis where I'm like, I'm not going to be 20 anymore. I'm going to be 30. Like, what have I done with my life? I'm going to be a 30-year-old man. Holy crap. What could I do for the last year of my 20s? And at the time, I was married with three kids, so I can't like you know, sell everything and get on a motorcycle and drive to Peru or something like most people do or would or think. So I was like, what if I made a video documenting the last year of my 20s, 365 videos? So the way that YouTube worked at the time is you got paid um, two months later. It was like a 60-day pay cycle. So all of the videos, when I started March 5th, those 25, 26 videos for that month, I got paid in those in May. Right. So... We started the daily vlogs, March, April, May, three months went along, and then I saw our paycheck for the March 25 videos that we did, and that check was for $6,000, and I remember seeing that on the computer screen and just yelling at my wife, like, Colette, come in here, come here, look at that, look. She's like, what's that? I'm like, that's how much we're going to get paid next month on YouTube. She's like, What? Are you serious? And real quick, I'm like, six grand. If I can make six grand a month, that's 72,000 bucks a year. I'm living in southeastern Idaho making 28,000 a year, and I'm considered middle class. If I'm making 70 grand a year, I'm going to be rich. And so that first month of daily vlogs where I saw we're going to get paid six grand this month to make these videos, it was like, Everything else went went away. The granite counter, like I remember the day my wife came in and said, "You need to go finish that granite job. We're gonna get paid ten grand on this giant granite job." I remodeled the entire house, kitchens, bathrooms, wet bar, shower, everything, and we're gonna get this big payday on this granite job. But I didn't want to finish it because I wanted to make YouTube videos. So the second that that happened, it all became like, "This is our full time job now. Like this is what we're doing." And now a funny statistic is as a 36-year-old man today, being a full-time YouTuber is the longest job I've ever had. Mm-hmm. So when people are like, oh, you can make money on YouTube? I'm like, yeah, I've been doing it for a decade, baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah, and it was, I guess the precursor to that is my biggest passion in life was to not hate my job mm-hmm. because I went to college and I was you know, just looking at people in the world And it seemed like everybody hated their job, right? It was a huge complaining point for everybody that, you know, you love your life on Fridays and you hate your life Monday mornings. I'm like, that's 80% of your life. If you hate your job, you hate 80% of your life. I do not want to hate a majority of my life. How do I get out of this rat race of, 
you got to go to college so you can get this piece of paper so that you can go to this organization and show them your piece of paper. And by the way, I'm an Eagle Scout. Please give me a job. Um, I didn't want that. I didn't want to be stuck. That was the rat race to me. That was the controlling environment of corporations where you feel like you're a cog in a wheel, that you have to do something, that you have to watch your P's and Q's or you're going to get in trouble. You can't think outside of the box. You have to fit in with your coworkers. You can't think of anything unique because it'll be ridiculed. All that kind of stuff that comes from being at a job, a J-O-B. I didn't want, and I fought tooth and nail against that. So let's, let's before... Well, I was going to say before graduation, but that, that sort of gets to the next question, which didn't is... Happen. Yeah, w- w- can you tell me a story about or describe the day you decided to drop out? Yeah. So I was in college uh, simply because I didn't know what else I was going to do, right? Um, I did serve a two-year mission from when I graduated high school, from when I was uh, 19 to 21. I went to the West Indies. And so I did have like a two-year space in between graduating high school and going to college where it was strictly service. I was only there in the West Indies to teach the Barbados, Trinidad, Guyana. Yep. I was in, um, those three countries, the West Indies mission, which was my mission is made up of 16 different countries. It's the entire Caribbean. So like St. Kitts, Grenada, Antigua, Barbados, all of that. And so the way our mission worked is we had move around every six to nine months. And so I lived in Barbados for seven months, which is a claustrophobic feeling when you can see the ocean from anywhere on the island. Like Barbados is seven miles wide. So if you're at the top, like you can look and almost see the ocean anywhere you're at on the island, and it's kind of a claustrophobic feeling. <laughs> if you're like, coming from a mountainous, yeah, Idaho, landlocked like, area also. I, this giant ocean is surrounding me. Um, and then I moved to Trinidad and Guyana for those two years. So that was a good time to kind of like get out of the world and to not think about me so much. Uh, that was a, a total service, you know, thing those two years. And so when I came back for my mission, my main priority, which is part of the culture of our church, is to get married. I remember like the last two weeks of my mission thinking, okay, I'm headed home. Who am I going to marry? Hmm. I liked Amber in high school. I'm going to marry Amber. Okay. I'm marrying Amber. But I didn't marry Amber. But like that was like the the thought process as a missionary. It's very like, okay, what's the next step in my life? Get married. And it was like one night in the West Indies, I decided I was going to marry this girl who seemed like the most logical reason. And then I came back and went to a play with my friend and found a girl on stage that was singing that I fell in love with that night. And I told my friend, Derek, I'm going to marry that girl, which is my wife. So um, came home, um, went to college, signed up for college because everybody else was. All my return missionary friends were all getting into college. So it's like, okay, now it's time to get my degree and figure out what I'm going to do. And because I was good with people, I always thought I'll be in sales or marketing. You know, you take those bubble sheets in school. They're like, fill out these 90 questions and we're going to tell you what best job suits you, which I was like, how do they know? Because like every question is like, do you like this? I'm like, well, I kind of like that. And so I'm like, how do I answer this? And so a lot of those bubble sheets, I would answer in the way that I knew I wanted to be perceived. Right. You know, it's like, I'm going to answer this because if I answer this, that means that I'm like this and I want to be like that. Which in a sense is like, maybe that is your real answer. So I hated those things too. So went to college, started taking all my generals, um, had a business, you know, like I'm going to be in business. I didn't know yet. And basically got to the point where I had taken all of my generals. I was about to... Like your prereqs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Like, you know, you got to take philosophy and psychology and English 101 and, you know, all these general prerequisite classes. And I had met 
and married. That's a huge long story. But I had met and married my wife, and we were pregnant with our second uh, child, Avia, our daughter. And I'll just tell you, and this might be true for universities around the nation, but there is no parking, little to zero parking. And it's just ridiculous because they said that they were going to build a parking garage with my $2,800 tuition, and they didn't. And I was just pissed. Every morning, me and my buddy Luke, we'd come into psychology class and we'd be like, you played the game this morning? And the game was trying to find an effing parking spot because we couldn't. <laughs> and there'd be days where I just miss class because like, I can't find a parking spot. And I'd racked up like $100 in like, parking tickets because I'm like, I can't find a spot. I'm parking here. I don't care. And every time they'd give you a ticket. So one day... I was at that spot where I was looking for a parking spot. We we're about to have our second kid. I felt guilty for leaving my wife at home with our, you know, our two-year-old son, and she's eight and a half months pregnant, and I'm going off to school every day. To, you know, I, I hated the fact that like my psychology teacher, for instance, you could just tell that she was an unhappy person, right? Like she, she knew all the psychological things from the book, but I could just tell she was a bitch. Like she just was angry. Like she, you couldn't, if you made a peep in her class, she would freak out. And I'm like, this is a psychology person who's supposed to understand the human workings of emotions and stuff. And she can't get her own stuff together. Like why am I spending $350 on her book that she wrote and she doesn't even seem happy? Like this is worthless to me. Like sure, I'm learning about Freud and all this, but I guess I learn more from people you know, than like, you know, stories. And so I was just sick of it. I was sick of what I saw as a rat race, as like this convoluted thing to almost like make, it's a, it's a business, you know, it's a business to make money. And so I was like, I can't find a parking spot. I'm done. And literally that day I dropped out of college and I was like, screw this. I'm not coming back. And I went home and my wife's like, I thought you had class. I'm like, nope, I'm done. I'm not going back. She's like, what are you going to do? Like, I'm going to get a job. I think I'm going to start my own business. I want to start my own business. And I guess the one thing that I did learn from college is I had a business 101 class from a teacher who really changed everything for me. And she defined the secret to success as loving what you do. And I you know, would say that I define it in different ways now. But back then, that was like a prophecy to me. I was like, yes, why do you have to hate your job? Why do you have, like, just so you can get money to buy groceries and, and get a house, you have to hate most of your life? Like, there's gotta be a better way. So when she said that, I, that was like an epiphany to me. Like, that's the secret to life, is to not hate your job, is to find something that you love to do. And so that became, from the day I dropped out of college was my pursuit. And I did a lot of things. I sold pest control door to door. I was a real estate agent. I was a car salesman. Uh, I owned my own granite countertop business. I was a school bus driver. I used to drive school buses and I would let the kids throw snowballs at the school bus and they almost <laughs> broke a window one day. So I had to tell them they can't do it anymore. But that was my ultimate goal is to not hate what I did for a living. And when that first $300 check from YouTube showed up, it was like, this is it. This so is what I'm going to do. So you said you might define it differently now. How would you define success or how do you think about that now? Well, you know, now that I have money, I define it differently because back in the day, to me, success was money. It was, and not just to be rich and not to have cool things, but to be able to provide, to be able to, you know, give things to my wife and kids. That's why I loved Ron Campbell so much early in the day because he had water ski boats 
and parasails. And I remember a family growing up that was, um, their dad was a dentist. And I just remember, like, they always had money to go to Hawaii and ski boats and stuff like that. And I remember kids being like, oh, the so-and-sos, they're so rich, blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, but isn't that a, like, why are you guys dissing on them? Like, they get to go to Hawaii. They get to do cool things. So early on, to me, that's what success was, to be able to provide, to be able to give to my kids and my wife. And now you find out that once you get money, that it is not the answer. It is not what gives you happiness. Um, and so I define success in many different ways. Uh, maybe we'll get this t- towards the end, but you usually ask on your podcast, who's a successful person? Yeah. Or when you hear the word successful, who do you think of? Let's just hit, let's hit it now. Yeah. Okay. Um, what I was thinking about that question before I was coming and like, without like naming specific people, I think to truly define somebody successful to me, relationships with people are important. So if you have a person that, and to me, it's older people, somebody who has kids, to me, the definition of success is being cool with your parents, your grandparents, and your kids. Like being able to navigate the, the difficult task of dealing with each other, human beings. You know, if you're able to have a good, you know, if you're in good relationship with your mom and your dad, and your kids, at, like to me, that's the definition of success. Um, and and sometimes you have to let those people go. Sometimes there's very, you know, like I, it's weird being an adult now and dealing with your parents in a sense where it's like my mom and dad say things now that I don't agree with at all, but I don't necessarily need to fight with them about that, right? It's It's being able to you know, be open enough to accept other ideas and, and accepting people for different spots in the road. Like we're all at different parts in our life. And because of the internet, because of YouTube, because of the litany of comments that I've received, uh, just ripping my life apart, for instance, by, um, reading thousands. I mean, this, the comment section of YouTube could be considered the cesspool of the human species sometimes. Like the worst things in the world are said in the comment section of YouTube. So I've been ridiculed for everything under the sun, um, whether it's how I installed my kid's car seat or me believing that there's an afterlife. You know, like people will just shred any any idea that I have apart. And so to me, success is not... Um, judging somebody or not trying to, um, you know, say a person is, is, is a certain type of person without knowing their whole story, right? Like, um, I guess to define that, like whenever I see celebrities in the news, like so-and-so did this, it's like, well, I don't really know the suffering that they're, you know, going through. Like you think about somebody like Prince who we all look up to or thought was amazing. And then you just think, man, he must've been in a lot of pain. Yeah. He must have been really suffering. But somebody like Prince can't come out and say that, right? He can't come out and be like, I'm really struggling. Or they feel like they can't. Yeah, right? exactly. That's the point. Or like a psychiatrist might have that same effect where they're the person that everybody comes to to talk to mm-hmm. and they feel like they have to be the strong one and they can't talk about their own weaknesses. So then they end up committing suicide. Or if you've ever known a friend, you know, it's like, why didn't you talk to somebody? And it's this fear of being vulnerable, I guess. Yeah, or if, uh, I mean, there's so many different pressures. The it makes me think of something I was I was told 
probably within the last two or three years, but that being everyone is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Right. Right. And just assuming that to be the case. And, uh, and another sort of corollary to that that I was told at one point was uh, don't assume malice when incompetence could explain it. Or, and I would just say also like busyness, right? Like don't assume malice. That's a very good point. Yeah. And to me, uh, realizing that what that means is people aren't really trying to hurt you. You know, I think a lot of times you think, well, that person is a vindictive, evil, mean person when really they're just uh, not paying attention. Really, like they're not purposely trying to hurt you or say mean things. You know, nobody ever, if, it seems like everybody only does things for personal reasons, right? Like they're not trying to hurt you. They're just trying to better their lives in a sense. So knowing that helps when you feel like you're being attacked by somebody, um, which is not necessarily the case. It's just them, you know, not communicating well or one of those things, but yeah, or just having a shitty day and, yeah. and, this, and not humanizing something on the internet. Or I mean, just being it's, in a bad state, like people yeah. get in bad moods. And that goes back to, um, using your body to change your mood. I recently went to a Tony Robbins event and he talks about that a lot where yeah. you have to change your physiology, like your body, these bones. When I, for instance, when I ran my first marathon and I lost a hundred pounds, it was weird to see my stomach so thin, like so close to my rib cage, if you will. And I remember sitting in the shower um, after I ran the marathon and like, it's just such a weird thing to say, but like, my bones are right there. Like looking at my knee and thinking about what it looked like inside of my body. And if we realize that these bodies are tools that will help our mental state, we can use our bodies to help us feel better. So your question earlier was like, what tips and tricks and things do you use? Tony Robbins teaches this thing called priming in the yeah. morning where it's similar to meditation where you know, you're thinking about things, but it's a very purposeful, like you sit up straight, you're breathing in a specific way, you're thinking specific things, and you can do things with your body that will change your entire mental perspective on things. Yeah. So, And just to, to sort of underpin the like, broader strategy behind that also, and if people want the details on some of his morning priming, he goes through it in the, uh, the two-part interview that I did with him at his house, so you can look that up. But the the sort of framework that he lays out that I think is very helpful is, uh, let me get this right. I think it's state story strategy, I believe. And like most people want to sit down to, to determine a strategy to address their issue, but they're in a negative state, right. which leads them to have an internal narrative that is self-defeating. And they, they see, they only see problems as opposed to solutions or alternatives. And the point that he makes is that you have to address it in the opposite direction. You have to you have to create the optimal state so that you can craft an enabling story, i.e., narrative, and that allows you to to produce or plan the best strategy. True. Uh, you can't make good decisions if you're in a bad mood, right? Yeah. Like the decisions you make when you're in a shitty mood are going to be shitty decisions. If you can make yourself become happy through these these things or just a better state, you're going to make better decisions. Yeah. Uh, 
I use cold exposure for that quite a bit. We might get a, a taste of that later when we go to the, the Russian baths I'm excited. with the <laughs> cold plunge. There's shrinkage, Tim. It's shrinking. Oh, I know. I know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, we can pull a George Costanza. <laughs> it's cold water. It's cold water. Uh, the, the, the next question I wanted to ask is, uh, I guess related to some of this, but like, what are some of the darkest periods that you've faced or some of the biggest challenges that you've, that you've had to overcome personally? Oh, well, we're going to talk about that one. Um, I think this would be shocking to my audience, for those that are listening, that have come over here from my section of the internet, but I battled with alcohol for, you know, four or five years, um, and that was tough. That was something that kind of... And it's something that I haven't talked about, honestly. Um, and maybe I'll want to cut this out of the podcast later. But um, <laughs> but it's very common. I mean, yeah, it, it, no. it's, it's <sighs> not an uncommon challenge to face, or addiction for that matter. Yeah, I, so I guess I should talk about it. My audience is probably freaking out right now. My mom's probably freaking out right now. But I think listening to Morgan Spurlock's podcast that you recently had on where he talks about being able to own your scars or talk about your scars or the hard times. Um, and I think in general, that is a societal thing that we all need to work on because there's a lot of people suffering and people don't want to tell you they're suffering. And so they'll suffer in silence and maybe even commit suicide if it gets to the horrible end of the spectrum. But you know, more than that is just the daily suffering that people are going through because they're afraid to tell their close friends and family their problems and what they're suffering through. So with me, it was when I started drinking, I drank in high school a little bit, like boys will be boys, kind of like we're seniors, senior night. Like I didn't drink a ton because of the culture I came from where, you know, the Mormon church has a code of health called the word of wisdom that says no alcohol, no tobacco, no coffee, tea. And it also says that you should eat fruits and vegetables and it also goes as far as saying that you should eat meat sparingly. Um, and in fact, only in times of winter or famine. This is a, a code of health that Joseph Smith revealed in the early 1800s that is what the Mormon culture lives on. As f and it's, it's a big part of the Mormon church. And it's not talked about. And it's this weird... I mean, we could go into hours of this, but basically, after I got married, I we were living in Utah. I was working at a granite job, getting paid nine fifty an hour. My wife, bless her heart, was doing a call center job every day, and we had one kid at the time. We, in fact, just had our first son, and we're just kind of trying to make ends meet. And the guys that I worked with at the granite shop afterwards, they'd get a few beers, and I'd be like, "That seems fun. I want to. I want to." what the heck? Like, let me try a few beers. And I didn't tell my wife. Right. So at first I was like, and that's the part of the Mormon culture where it's like, I couldn't even go tell my wife, like, Hey, I had a few beers today after work. Cause I was afraid that she would almost even to the, to the extent that she would leave me like, what you did? What I'm out of here. And of course that's just like my overactive brain, like thinking the worst, which we all do. But it became a thing where I started drinking every once in a while. And this was way before YouTube even started. And I was lying to her for like eight months almost where I wasn't telling her that I was drinking, where I would, you know, have sunflower seeds or something like that to cover my breath. 
because it was some something I was like, if she knew about this or I don't know, whatever, you know, this was years and years ago. So then I found YouTube, right? Then I got onto YouTube. We started making videos and through the process, I met a bunch of people on YouTube, made friends and moved to Los Angeles, California to start this company called Maker Studios that we talked about at the beginning that sold to Disney with a bunch of people that I met. You know, there's like seven or eight of us. And living in Venice Beach was the biggest culture shock I'd ever received. <laughs> and I had coming lived, from San Francisco yeah. even you have culture shock when you go to Venice. So I can right. only imagine. It was it was so weird because I feel like I had lived, you know, I had lived in Dallas, Texas. I had moved around selling pest control. I was in the West Indies for 2 years as a missionary. But moving to Venice was weird because it wasn't like the friends that I talked to, it wasn't like if they believed in, it wasn't like what religion. That was all my life before. It was like, well, are you Hindu, Catholic, Muslim? What are you? You know, but them in Venice, it was like, oh, you believe in God? That's cute, Shay. Pat on the head. Do you believe in Santa too? And I was like, whoa, 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 wait, you guys don't even believe in God like at all? And my Venice beach friends are like, no, like, how can you prove there's a God? I'm like, well, I guess I can't, but that was just a weird concept for me. So having a few beers wasn't a big deal to them, you know? And so that became easy for me. Not only are these my friends and people I looked up to creatively, but these were my business partners and it became hard to connect if you didn't drink. And I hated the fact that people wouldn't open up until they've had a few drinks. Yeah. Like as a sober person now, I haven't had a single solitary hand to the square drink in four years. It annoys me to the point of infuriation when I go to like after parties or something where nobody will get on the dance floor until they've been drinking for like 30 minutes. I'm like, why do you need this substance to loosen up a little bit? You know, and that's what I liked about alcohol as I liked being able to like finally talk to people in an open manner where it wasn't like, well, we have to worry about all the proper PC things. It's like, let's just really talk here, right? Like quit being so presumptuous or like saying these big words, like let's just talk as dudes, you know? So I like that about alcohol. It, it, it gave people that ability, but I have this saying that is just specific to my personality that is this. If one is good, then all is the best. <laughs> Meaning I cannot just have a couple beers, right? No. Like I am an extremist. Like I can't... I don't think either of us are very good at moderation. Right. I am bad at moderation. So I have to make decisions, you know, because some people, well, why can't you just have a few beers and be fine with it? I'm like, well, one beer, I mean, it's an acquired taste. It tastes like like the first time you drink beer, I remember the very first time I drank beer as a 19 year old. I'm like, this is disgusting. Why do people drink this? And if they say they like it, they're lying. It's disgusting. Um, anyways, I mean, we could talk all about that, but towards the end, when I, you know, let the natural progression of addiction happen, which it will, if you're not very conscious, um, I was drinking every day. Yeah. And I was drinking, if not every day, six days a week. And if I went 48 hours without drinking, I was like, man, when's the last time I had a drink? Wednesday? That's forever ago. Like, it got to the point where it was, it was definitely, you know, it wasn't taking over my life because I was able to, I guess I was a functioning alcoholic, you could call it. And I think a lot of people do that. And I think a lot of people do that more than they're willing to admit. I think half of Silicon Valley uh, is comprised of 
yeah, like functioning alcoholic. How do you define alcoholism, right? Like, I don't like calling myself an alcoholic, but if you drink more than three days a week, maybe you drink four days a week and you have more than one or two glasses of wine, to me, you're an alcoholic. And there's obviously different levels, but it's like, why do you drink? Do you drink to get drunk? Do you drink so that you can open up to people? Yeah. Uh, you know, you have to be, like I said earlier, your own devil's advocate. You have to ask yourself those hard questions. Well, I think, I think also the litmus test for, for addict could be your ability to stop or inability to stop, right? I, I remember, for instance, I've only scared myself once with alcohol in this capacity, but just first of all, I want to applaud you for talking about this because I think the biggest, one of the biggest risks when people are facing problems that make them fear for their their sanity or their grip on the family, whatever it might be, is the feeling of being alone. Like this is a unique problem, which is why it took me almost nine months, and I'm kind of ashamed it took me that long after deciding to write this post on suicide because I was off myself in college and I was ashamed of it and I didn't want to scare my parents and fill in the blank, right? There are all of these concerns. And Ultimately, I realized that I was doing a disservice with someone with a platform, which is a great, uh, it's a great blessing and so on, but it's also a great responsibility that I, I felt compelled to share. Uh, but it's, um, so I have, alcoholism runs in my family. And I remember at one point, this is a long time ago, I was living in San Jose, and I was cooking breakfast one morning. And I guess I'd had like a glass of wine or, or two with a friend the night before. So there was a bottle of wine that was uh, like half full. And I was cooking something and it called for some type of vinegar or whatever. And I was like, oh, I could just use some wine. And so like splash some wine and I'm cooking. And then I took like one little swig of wine and put it down. And I was like, oh, that was kind of like a fun thing to do in the morning. Just like get started off. And over the course of a few weeks, it was like, okay, now I'm taking like two swigs in the morning and then three swigs in the morning. And it wasn't a lot, but I remember one morning it was like nine 30 and I had a slight buzz on and I was like, Whoa, 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 this is not good. Really? This yeah. is not good at all. And, um, but similarly, it's like, I, I do drink alcohol, but whenever I feel like I might be the, the I feel like alcohol is using me and not the other way around then I just cut it out and I'll, and I'll go four weeks without because I remember right. here in Silicon Valley, it's so easy to, uh, or in, in, in any city, LA really, and, and I'm sure in many non-cities, you look back at the week and you're like, okay, I had three glasses of wine at various dinners and social outings five or six nights this week. Right. That is a lot of alcohol. Right. Uh, but so, so how did you finally break that habit? Or what? So... I mean, the reason I'm willing to talk about this now, and I've been wanting to talk about it for a long time, is because I know that there are so many people suffering through this still right now. Because I remember being in that spot. I remember thinking about quitting. And I remember thinking, but how will I have a good time? How will I have fun? Like, what will I do? The the very first day that I quit right around 4 p.m. rolled around and I was like freaking out. Like, what do I do? Like, I was like anxious. I had to, I remember I had to leave the house and go rock climbing. I'm like, I have to do something. I have to do something. I'm going to drink again. Um, and that's just 
advice if you are taking something out of your life like alcohol, you have to replace it. Replace it. Anything you take out, there's a void, there's a hole. And if you don't put something back in that hole that's healthy, that same negative thing will go back. Just like you're saying with the wine in the morning, we as humans are prone to the path of least resistance, right? It's not easy to get better. It's tough. And our natural, you know, inclination is towards addiction and towards the things that are easy, right? Like it's easy to drink alcohol and take away the pain. It's easy to not wake up in the morning and exercise. It's easy to go through the drive through and buy a Big Mac, right? Like what are you willing to do that is hard? And I think understanding that and being able to embrace that work specifically. Like I remember my grandpa was like, work will work when nothing else will work. Coming from the military, <laughs> he just taught yeah, us, yeah. you work your ass Work off. will work when nothing else will work. Yeah. I, and I grew up with that where it's like, if it's not working, then just work harder, you know? So like, I definitely see the value in hard work. The re, the Casim uh, G, my buddy I was talking about earlier, uh, he has a house in Venice Beach with a swimming pool and it was an early morning scenario like you were talking. It was like 11 a.m. And I remember me and my brother going over to Kasim's house and he had a bottle of whiskey there and we were going to sit in the pool and stuff. And it's like, hey, let's have a few shots of this whiskey. So I remember my California friend, my atheist friend, Kasim, being like, dude, it's not even noon. And I'm like, wow. Like all of a sudden, I'm like, how far have I come where when I first moved out here, I couldn't believe that these people didn't believe in God. And now all of a sudden, they're lecturing me on drinking too early in the day. And so I was like, shut up, blah, 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 blah. You know, like alcoholics do. It's not a problem. <laughs> a lot of you right now are probably like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about because you feel self-conscious about your drinking too much. Like you need to be able to say, yes, I probably do drink too much. Anyways, I got in his swimming pool. I was swimming, kind of drunk. Um, and I was kind of having a conversation with God, honestly, like I was swimming and I was like, I need to quit. I need to quit. Like one, my buddy's telling me I'm drinking too early Two, I'm a fat. So like that's, I was drinking my calories. Like I, I have a very large capacity. I could drink a 24 pack and still like have this conversation wow. with you. Like I, it's just the way that my body is like, Anyway, so I was having this conversation as somebody who believes in an eternal creator. I was kind of talking to God in a sense in my mind. And a lot of times my conversations with God are, I think, really honest conversations that I'm having with myself. Like I see God as this, you know, this eternal creator that loves me. And I was having this conversation in the swimming pool, like, I'm going to quit in two weeks because I have this, like, you know how you always have like uh, life moments, like I have to do this and then I'll quit after this. And it's always the next morning, right? Like my, the diet starts tomorrow. And I just was swimming and I had this, this revelation or something. It's like, if you really are serious about quitting and you really want to quit, the only way that you're going to quit, because I was terrified of not being able to quit. Like I was really in that moment where it was taking control of me, where when 4 PM rolled around, if I didn't start drinking, I was really you know, physiologically feeling it. Like I had that addiction. And so I'm like, how am I going to quit? How am I going to quit? And the the realization came to me in that swimming pool that if you don't quit right now, right this second, like when you get out of this pool, you're a non-drinker, then you'll never quit. And that terrified me. 
like I had that realization like somebody spoke it to me. Like if you don't stop right now, like right this second, like if you don't say I'm done, I'm quitting, you'll never quit. And I knew that that was true. Like the second that I thought that, I was like, I won't because I'll always think of another reason. I'll always say tomorrow. I'll always say next week and it'll never end. And the progression, like how many of you listening right now have ever done or said something that you totally regret while you were drunk? Everybody, almost, yeah, right? right? Yeah. Why? Well, and, and just to also to, to, to just highlight that, I think a lot of people drink, they don't need the drinking to open up, but they want the plausible deniability. They want to be able to say, I had, I had too much to drink. I, I had yeah. too much to drink. Yeah. Um, but not to interrupt. Yeah, everybody's had that experience, of course. And so I had that realization in the swimming pool and it terrified me. I just thought, where does this lead, right? Where does this alcoholism go? What is the natural progression? I've, I was able to see where it had taken me to that point, which was feeling like crap in the mornings, being overweight, you know, you know, saying things every once in a while that were a little like, whoa, I can't believe he said that. You know, like, I didn't like that feeling. I don't want to be that person. And I guess the ultimate goal is deciding the person you want to be on purpose. And that is not who I wanted to be. So I quit. That stroke, that breaststroke, I was like, it scared me so much to the point that I'm like, okay, that's the answer. I have got to quit right now. And I got out of the pool and I told everybody that was there, there was a couple people, I said, I quit drinking. And they all laughed at me because I drank a lot. And every, and I that's in my personal community, like my friends that were, you know, my wife, my wife knew, like I told, I talked earlier about how I didn't tell my wife, but my wife definitely knew after the eight months I told her, you know, so everybody knew that was in my close and they knew what a big part of my life it was because I was the one at parties who's like, didn't want any ever, any, I never want anybody to leave. It was like, wait, you're leaving? No, come on. Like I never wanted the party to end in a sense. And so I quit. And the thing that really saved me is right at that time, like I, like I think it was the next day I went on this hunting trip with my dad and my brother and my son. And we were up in the middle of the mountains where there wasn't a convenience store or a liquor store closed. This is the day after this was the like, swimming pool. Yeah. This was like, I can't remember if it was the day after or two days after. But shortly but, thereafter. But that in the pool, that was my justification. I was like, well, I'll quit on the hunting trip because I'm going to be with my dad and my brother and my son and I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to want to, you know, normally I would have, I would have found a way to hit it, you know, but I was like, I don't want to drink on the hunting trip. It's like a father, son, not only my dad, but my brother and my son. It's like three generations. Like this is a meaningful man's trip. And so in the pool, I was like, well, I'll quit when I go on that hunting trip. But I knew I had to quit before because of what I said. So it was like three days before, but anyways, we went um, to the mountains and hunted elk for two weeks. And that was a very, you know, waking up at five in the morning and not being able to say a thing because my brother would yell at me if I'm too loud out on the mountain. <laughs> my, my brother's a professional hunter. Like that's what he does for a living. Like he has a YouTube channel. So you can't snicker or like make little jokes like I like to do when you're trying to hunt big game with a bow and arrow. And so I had to be quiet at the same time of being in like the, the most grandiose mountains I've ever seen. And so I had a lot of time to think like right after I had made that swimming pool decision. So that two weeks, or I think it was like more like eight days hunting for elk in the mountains of Idaho 
was a real good therapy for me. And I recommend, I mean, I was at the point of alcoholism where me and my wife were calling rehab centers. Like I was like, I'm just going to disappear for two weeks, whatever it takes. I'm gonna go to Malibu, you know, like how stereotypical we moved to LA. I became an alcoholic and I had to go to rehab, you know, and I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that person. Well, instead you did, uh, the oldest, the oldest, the oldest rehab known to man going on go hunting. an extended hunting trip. Yeah. <laughs> and I ended up killing my first elk on that trip too. That was a crazy story. And then, uh, my brother cooked us up steaks that night and I hated it. Cause I, I have like, I like animals a lot. So when I was eating that steak, I could just see that elk's eyes looking at me <laughs> okay. as I shot him from 40 yards away in the neck. So I, I didn't do great on that, but, um. And that's why I have been vegan in the past, but not as much now. So what would you say to any, any other words for someone out there who might be facing addiction? Oh, Timothy Ferris, I can't believe I just said that I drank alcohol for so long. Please forgive me, Mom. I love you. <laughs> I would say this. You're not alone, though. Right. I mean, yeah, you're not alone, right? Like Andrew, see, Andrew, is- Andrew Zimmer's talked about his, he was shooting up, I think it was heroin at the time. Margaret Cho has talked about her battles. Like, this is a common battle. Right. And that's why I've been motivated to talk about it because I feel like my story can help a lot of people. And I think that in general, that idea of, listen, society, let's not be so hard on each other. Like, let's let's forgive each other and let's be okay with each other's weaknesses so that we can talk about them so that then we can become, we can start to heal, that we can become stronger. Yeah. Yeah, well, with this like suicide uh, post that I mentioned, you know, I've been carrying that baggage for so long. And even many of my closest friends had no idea. And I was, and I kept it mostly to myself out of shame, but also out of fear of my parents' reaction, if they would blame themselves, et cetera. And then I put it out there, the burden was gone, like the weight was lifted. And the, my parents responded, uh, you know, in many different ways, but all positive and effectively said, like, you're doing really important work. And I right. was like, Holy shit, if I had known this was going to be the response... You wouldn't have to suffer so long. I would, I would have put this out so much sooner, and maybe it would have helped people that I didn't have a chance to help. And that's important to realize about humans, for people who are wanting to do something like this, who are wanting to get something painful off their chest, or admit to a, an addiction, or just anything. You know what it is. Right now, as you're listening, you're like, oh, it's this thing for me, because we all have our different things. To have to realize that people are more forgiving than you think they're going to be. Because, like what we talked about earlier, people are all suffering in their own way. There's some sort of like, it helps to know that you're suffering too. Not like misery loves company, but like, oh, he's suffering. Like, you'll find that people are way more forgiving than you thought if you're vulnerable. If you get caught and then you have to make an apology video, then everybody's going to be like, screw this guy. But if you're willing to be like, listen, here's a major problem I have. Here's a real weakness that I'm suffering with. Like I wake up and suffer. I have pain, physical pain from mental thoughts, that kind of stuff. If you're able to just open up and be vulnerable, you'll find I think almost every time people will bend over backwards to try to understand you and say it's okay and like try to help you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let's switch gears just a little bit, or a lot of a bit, I suppose. But uh, we haven't spoken much about Maker Studios. What were the most important decisions or 
happenings that allowed it to be as successful as it was? It's about doing something new. It's about having the courage to say, we're going to try this thing that's never been done before and just see where it goes. Like, just the concept of moving to Los Angeles, like picking up and moving my wife and three kids to Venice Beach to start an internet company with some people that I had only met like six months to a year previous was like everybody that I knew was telling me not to do it. My mom, my audience, like I had viewers at the time. And this is part of the documentary I talk about um, that I made called the vlogumentary with Morgan Spurlock and my buddy Corey Vidal. But um, I talk about when we moved to Los Angeles, I had to convince our viewers that it was going to be cool because they're all worried like, oh, you're going to become LA. They really liked that we were this regular family from Idaho. So just moving out to Los Angeles to start a business was this first step that was so unconventional, so risky that it's like, you don't know these people. What if they're going to scam you? Like, we all do this, right? To protect ourselves. We all, you know, question these what ifs. Like, we all make reasons why we can't do something that we dream about because it's dangerous, it's risky, it's not smart, it's not prudent, whatever. So that was the first step is just saying like, wow, there's people watching these YouTube videos and some people are starting to get paid doing it. What if we started a business that helped each other create these videos? So having said that, the audience... Just, just a quick pause. When, when did you have the conversation that decided it? Like, what, what was, was there a night when it's like you had a conversation? It's like, all right, fuck it, I'm in. And then you had to sit your wife down and be like, yeah. honey, I have great news. <laughs> That was a two-week process, the convincing of my wife to move to California. The first of those conversations was on the telephone at the radio studio at Z103. A guy named Danny Zappin, um, better known on the internet as Danny Diamond, um, he helped his girlfriend, whose name was Lisa Nova, still is, Lisa Donovan, uh, produce the Lisa Nova channel, which was a big channel early on. Um she was not only the biggest female YouTuber, but she was just like the biggest YouTuber at the time when I came onto the site in 2006, 2007. It was the Lisa Nova channel. It was huge. Like everybody knew who Lisa Nova was. So because I was just getting into the community, I of course knew who Lisa Nova was and was like, you know, want to get to know more YouTubers so that I could kind of be in this YouTube community. And had come to found out that she had a boyfriend named Danny and her brother, Ben, who kind of helped produce her content. Because at the time, she had more produced content than anybody. They were doing skits. Like, she was dressing up as, ja um, you know, Captain Jack from Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, they had friends that did really great Hillary impressions. Um, anyway, so I had met these people, right? And started talking to them about making YouTube videos and so forth. And had a phone conversation with Danny one night where he had set up a deal with a movie studio to promote this new Jason Statham movie called uh, Crank, I think it was. Oh, yeah, Crank. And to keep his heart rate above a certain <laughs> RPM or you would yeah. die. Yeah. Or beats per minute. And so it was just a deal to promote that second movie. So 
the studio said, we want other YouTubers as well. Like we want Lisa Nova to produce a video promoting the movie. And do you guys know any other of these YouTubers? And Dave Days was one. I was one. So he called me in Idaho at the radio station at Z103 and said, hey, we got this deal through so-and-so productions that I can fly you out to LA and I can give you 2000 bucks to come out here and make a video. We'll help you make it. We'll help you shoot it and edit it. And then you have to upload your channel to promote this movie coming out so people will go see it. And I was like, dude, a free trip to LA and you're going to give me two grand? I remember calling my wife that night and be like, babe, I got to book tickets to LA because blah, 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 blah. And she's like, wait, what? Who? Why? How much? What? You know? So that was the first <laughs> night that it was like, whoa, this is like 2000 bucks. Like we're really cranking here. So... I went out and this is so great because I have this all in vlog footage. Like you can go to my old vlogs and see when I made this very first trip to Los Angeles to make this movie or to make these videos that would promote this Jason Statham movie. So the first night that I was there, we're all sitting, we had shot that day. You know, they had this nice camcorder. They had a boom pole. They had a microphone on a stick. And I remember thinking like, wow, these guys are they're high production. These guys are real yeah, like, professionals. Yeah, Hollywood, baby. I'm in Hollywood. They got a boom pole. <laughs> and they had Final Cut Pro, and they knew how to edit, and I had, knew none of that, really. I just knew how to talk like I know how to do. So that first night in Venice Beach with Danny and Lisa and Ben all kind of sitting there, Danny's like, what if we started a business doing this? Like, what if we helped each other think of ideas, write scripts, edit, shoot, you could, you know, we have some props. We have a wardrobe department. She can do makeup. Like, what if we made a studio where we helped each other create content? And I was like, sign me up. This is funner than anything I've ever done. This really lends to all the things I like to do, which is act silly and, you know, just be in front of people and that kind of thing. And so I remember moving back, telling my wife, hey, I want to move our family to Venice Beach to start this business. And my selling point to her was this, babe, all we need to do is keep $200 cash on hand because that $200 is gas money. If for some reason everything hits the fan, we go totally broke for whatever reason, if we just have 200 bucks cash, we can drive back to Idaho and live with my parents. So that was my like, babe, it's cool because we could drive home and live with my parents if everything goes to hell. <laughs> Which is not a great sales technique, but... Um, it's not the worst I've heard. No, right? That was like my safe, my fail safe, is we just had to have this $200 cash. So um, bless my wife's heart. She has supported me through my crazy ideas that I've had. Um, she has put the kibosh on a few, like when I wanted to move to Alaska for a year and live off the land. She said no to that which pissed me off, but whatever. <laughs> so we did. Um, she finally agreed to it, and um, we kind of told our parents, and, and I had to leave the radio job, which was kind of sad, but they were like, oh, you're moving to LA. You finally made it. And I'm like, no, I haven't. We're going to be broke. Um, and so we moved out to Los Angeles, and the very first deal that we got to, uh, other than this, this movie when I first went out, was A1 Steak Sauce. Um, when I moved out there in June we had this deal where we had to promote A1 Steak Sauce and they had this whole campaign that was called Sing for Your Beef and we had to get people to make up songs. How ridiculous, right? Of them singing <laughs> about their meat. <laughs> and about like this. I would have loved to have just been like a fly in the wall for the creative meeting. Oh, it's like, how are we going to get these people to make up songs? Yeah, it was, it was difficult. But that first brand deal through A1 Steak Sauce started 
um, not only helped us pay for our rent for the first three months, but it kind of started Maker Studios. And then we got uh, some other How deals. did the A1 deal happen? It was all through, I can't even remember, like Danny at the time had some contacts, you know, because he was in that world and, you know, they're just barely and bless A1's heart for being so forward thinking. This is eight years ago. You know, this is, you know, to have marketers have an advertising budget that was on the internet was unheard of, right? And now that's almost all companies are switching to. So it was very early on. I can't remember how we got the A1 contact, but... um. And then what followed after that? I, I, I interrupted. Then, yeah, then we had this um, Sanyo Zacti campaign. Like those early brand deals were like really the money that helped us get the business off, off the ground. There was this camera called the Sanyo Zacti. And we all made a bunch of content on these cameras. They were waterproof and we did all these silly things with them. And it was all about, you know, sharing a product to our audience that trusted us as influencers. And then that product would pay us. And, you know, that's one of the revenue streams for YouTubers, but the main one is, you know, just getting views. So those early deals kind of helped get the business off the ground. But as we started the business, we decided to start a channel together. And so we took like the five or six biggest YouTubers at the time, and we created a collaboration channel called The Station. And the idea of that was a rising tide lifts all ships. So it's like if we all pour into this, then the sum will be greater than our parts, right? Where two plus two doesn't equal four, but it equals five. Where for some reason, there's this magic of networking and working together where you actually create or receive you know, more than you think you would where I'm one person that can do this much output in 12 hours. And you would think naturally that adding one more person would just double that output, yeah. right? But a lot of times you see that it does more than double it because of whatever. Like we're, I think we're meant to be with each other as humans. Like we're not meant to be individuals. So it's just the same concept. Like if you're listening to music while you're working, your output's going to be higher. So whenever you network something, and we see this in computers now, there's a greater um, output, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's exponential growth. Einstein said that compounding interest is the eighth wonder of the world. There's just magic there, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you connect people and teams. And so that's what happened is the station, this channel, it grew bigger than almost all of our audiences. It all of a sudden had a million subscribers within the first month. And it was insane. And it just grew like wildfire. It was the first time that you had um, social influencers coming together. It was like a Care Bear stare, if you will. You know how all the Care Bears get together and once they link and they Care Bear stare, it's like way stronger than just the individual Care Bear power? Yes. You get what I'm saying here. Tom. I do. You're from the 80s. <laughs> um, and that effect happened. And we all of a sudden started to have to hire people. And we had to make up job titles because the job titles that you know, a social media optimizer is like, we just need somebody to help us with Twitter and Facebook. Things like that didn't exist in the marketplace. So we had to invent jobs, basically. How did you find your employees? People off the internet. The very best employees from Maker were people who were YouTubers themselves. People who struggled through trying to gain an audience, trying to create something that was unique, that people would watch, and then trying to make a living at that. Like a YouTuber is is a multifaceted person. They produce, edit, write, shoot, all of the things that 
need to happen to create content, YouTubers do all of those things. And that's why old media, you know, Hollywood, um, they're having such a hard time keeping up is because we can create content so much faster and so much cheaper than they can. I remember hearing on a panel once that content is a commodity, just like wood or gold or oil. My YouTube videos are a commodity that I can trade. And that's usually through advertising. Like, you know, you place advertising on that content, but people now in 2016 are buying that content, you know, and marketing people are realizing that the influence that I have as a social influencer is way more powerful than an ad on a, a TV screen or a movie screen. It was, it's like in the past, marketers and advertisers have put a priority on the size of the screen where it's like, I talked about CPMs earlier. Mm-hmm. I get two to three bucks per thousand views. TV gets 25 to 30 bucks. So it's like, if I could get my CPMs up to what TV CPMs are, I would be making bank, right? But because of this perception that advertisers have that, well, it's way more valuable to spend our money on a TV commercial than to pay some YouTube guy to talk about our product. That paradigm is shifting where they're realizing now that my audience of 4.2 million subscribers are people that have been with me for eight years. These are people that have watched my kids be born. Yeah, it's your extended family. These are my best friends, right? And what's the best form of marketing? Word of mouth, right? So instead of paying $100,000 to be, you know, per second to be on a Super Bowl ad, I think advertisers and marketers are realizing that they have much more value with somebody like me that I can be like, look at this link right here, click on it. On the TV, you can't click on a link. I can give advertisers analytics that are so specific, it would blow their minds. Like, look, uh, 13 to 17 year old age females watch this for 2.3 minutes. And when I said this, they stopped watching. Like the analytics in Google are that specific where there's hot spots where they can tell you um, when people click off of the video. So you can then go into the video and say, well, what did I say that made people leave right there? So with advertisers, now that we can show them that, the ad dollars are switching where it's like they don't put a premium on the size of the screen anymore because they're realizing that the size of the eyeball is exactly the same, right? All of our eyeballs are the same. So that's, I think, ultimately what caused Disney to write this big billion-dollar check to buy a maker studios is this influence. And it was the networking, and it was more than anything, I think, Disney's like, whoa, what's going on here? There's some real traction, and we just want to get into that. And somebody like Disney can just write a big check to get into it. And guys like us who just started a company four years ago can take that big check and say, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so you've you've started more companies since like tricks and clothing with uh i guess help me out here your your sister yeah it's else? a it's um it's a family business you know and i guess just just i want, I want you to describe it but the, the question i have for you is why start another business and there's no right answer but I, like, I mean, we were talking a little bit about prices in, say, San Francisco versus prices where you live. Like, you have, I would imagine, more than enough to do whatever you need to do or want to do. That's the other misconception, I think, too, is I think people see that the company sold for that much and they think, well, surely he's, you know, I, I wonder how much people, money people think that I have. But there was a lot of founders and plus Time Warner invested like $20 million, so they got a big chunk of it. Anyways... It's about growth. It's about if you're not growing, you're dying. Tony Robbins said this. If it's not 
you don't live to achieve. It's like while you're achieving, you're a living. You know, like I just my accountant calls me a serial entrepreneur mm -hmm. where I just I want to grow things. Like I want to try things that I've never tried. Growing up, I skied um a ton. I I rollerbladed. I was in all the extreme sports, so like Volcom, North Face, Hurley, all these companies were huge influences when I was young. And growing up, me and my brother always wanted to start a clothing company. So now where it's like, well, I have the money and the time, let's try this thing that we had always talked about as kids. So we started Tricks and Clothing and it's very family oriented. Um, Dave Ramsey, who's a financial guy I listen to, says the only uh, ship that sinks is a partnership. So I've kind of gone against that advice. Um, but yeah, we co-founded the company with my two brothers, my sister, my best friend from high school, my brother-in-law, and like a camera guy that I have. And they all have equity in the company. Like I believe that people should be invested to the point where if they work harder, they get paid more. I don't like the hourly situation where it's like, you trade your time for money. So it's like, it doesn't matter how hard you work, you get paid the same amount. So anybody that like I go into business with, I almost always want to offer some sort of equity, whether it's small or large, depending on what they can help, because I want them to have an invested interest in it. So Tricks and Clothing is more of a content company than a clothing company. You know, we have, we just make clothes that we like to wear and then we go do fun stuff and we shoot all of that. And really what we're selling is this lifestyle of creating great moments with your friends and family and we just wear these shirts and hats while we're doing it. So it's really an excuse to do fun things with my siblings and my friends because it's like the last video we shot, we went to this um, I fly skydiving tunnel in Ogden, yes, Utah. I saw that, yeah. And that's work for yeah. us. Like we're going because we have to make this video about this new hat that we're launching. So but you, in order to launch it, we're going to make this cool skydiving video. Right. Indoor skydiving. Yeah. In, indoor skydiving. So <laughs> Mostly the reason I started Tricks and Clothing was to have an excuse to hang out with my friends and family. And then people won't say that I'm lazy because I'm obviously working <laughs> on my business. Okay, so we're back from the Russian bath break. Rejuvenated, refreshed. <laughs> Seeing each other naked. Seeing each other naked. <laughs> That all. was exhilarating. It was uh, the the cold plunges. I'll tell you imperative. what, if people, if your listeners don't know this, Tim Ferriss can sit in a cold plunge longer than anybody I've ever seen. We're talking <laughs> sub zero. That's forty degree, forty degrees or so. It's yeah. cold water. It's cold. It's cold. It's definitely shrinkage factor to the point where Tim was under the water holding his breath. I watched a guy come get in the bath in the cold plunge, get out, shiver. And jump out of the thing saying, how is he doing that while you were under the water the entire time? So very refreshed, very uh, awake now. Yeah. Very awake, very awake. And uh, we talked about some cool stuff and I was like, we need, to, we need to record this. We need to record this. So we didn't get too far into it. But one of the conversations we were having related to one of the aspects of what you do that I find impressive, which is you are atypical in some respects with the way you've brought your audience along with you for eight years yeah. on YouTube. And I was lamenting and also focusing on the, on a lot of family related content. And I was lamenting that when I was initially given suggestions for, for being more active on YouTube, I, 
I was, I was ten, I tended to be pushed towards doing like super fast cut. You must appeal to like 12 to 15 year olds. And that didn't jibe with me. But I am interested potentially based on what you've told me and what Casey Neistat has told Mm -hmm. me experimenting with daily vlogging, even if just as like a form of therapy experimentation for myself. Uh, and we were discussing the potential of possibly doing, say, like a th- like thirty day experiments where people can do this along with me, which I've done before on the blog with like Nob Nom, which was <laughs> no booze, no masturbation for thirty days. That might be a weird video, <laughs> so maybe not the no masturbation <laughs> transition part. But uh, what would what would your suggestions be for doing that the the right way or the smarter way instead of the dumber way? Because quite frankly, I'm so used to doing long form content. Right. And these long books, long blog posts, that I struggle to think of how to do short form vlogs. You don't need to necessarily. I know traditionally early on the internet has been, it's a low attention span place, right? Where it's like, I remember early on when I started uploading vlogs, it's like, if you had something over five minutes, good luck getting somebody to watch it, right? Like, we're talking internet videos here. They need to be 30 to 90 seconds. You need to, you know, that's how the internet kids are. They're bouncing around the timelines, the Snapchats, the Facebooks all over. But that's not true anymore with YouTube. Like our vlogs average 12 to 20 minutes. Um, and anymore, YouTube rewards, the algorithm rewards longer videos because they want people on the site. So I've found that our you know, 12 to 15 minute videos have actually done better because people are on the site longer and the algorithm rewards watch time. So the longer somebody's on your video, the longer or the more likely that they'll see more of your videos or that your other related videos will pop up in the suggested videos box. So I guess my first tip my well first, everybody listening should tweet Tim relentlessly until he starts a YouTube channel. Uh, because I know you guys want to see more of him, but it's just a better way to communicate with your audience. Like if, Mm -hmm. if you're a human Guinea pig, you know, like you kind of say sometimes like you're trying these things, you're trying to deconstruct, you know, world-class people. What a better way than to do what they do. You know, the Mm -hmm. best way to, um, kind of achieve anything is find somebody who you want to be like and just do what they do, you know, kind of follow their pattern. And so, with what a 30 day vlog or what a daily vlog will do for you. And what it's done for me is it really helps you look at yourself in a sense where I live every day twice where I live my day. And then that night, as I import the footage from that day, I watch all that stuff. And it's not like, you know, if I have a 20 minute vlog or a 15 minute vlog, I only had 40 minutes of footage that day. Right. So it's like, there's not cameras out 24 seven. I shoot to edit. Right. So I'll pull out the camera and I should do it while I'm here. My camera's in my, in my backpack, but I will edit as I'm shooting. Right. So like as I'm talking, I will make cuts in my mind that I know I'm going to make later where I like take a breath, talk here, apple tea cut and then start talking again. So because I've edited myself so much when I'm shooting myself, I know how long I want the clip to be. So I'll never shoot for longer than two minutes. A single take. Yeah. Yeah, and and I'm good at that, and I've gotten better where I can just flip the camera on and talk. Some people find it really hard because you become self-conscious. You're like, I don't like the way I said that. And we talked about this at the Russian Baths. To me, one of of the biggest keys to success is not caring what other people think. 
just being able to speak freely and not worry about how it's going to be perceived. I, I was telling Tim this. I haven't been nervous for a long time to do something, but I was super nervous to come on this podcast because I know the caliber of people that listen to it. Um, and so a lot of times I like the fact that it's like, yeah, I sold my company for a billion dollars because then that gets respect, right? right? But sometimes when I'm like just jabbering mm-hmm. like I do in my daily vlogs, I think people could stumble upon this and be like, what's this? This is a waste of time. But there's not a right or a wrong way to do it. The mm-hmm. way to do it is to just start doing it, just to get a channel, make a video and upload it. And then you start to learn what you like, what you don't like. Like I've always said, you shouldn't start a channel to try to be like Philip DeFranco. When I first found Phil, it was like, do I have to do that? Do I have to do these quick cuts and do popular culture? Do I have to talk about Britney Spears going to jail? Like, what can my thing be? And my thing was, I just want to turn the camera on and talk. Or one of my very first vlogs when we were trying to get a Christmas tree from the basement upstairs and we got the Christmas tree stuck like in the stairway (laughs) and my son was stuck underneath this artificial Christmas tree and my wife was like trying to pull the tree down the stairs and my son was stuck like inside the tree and it was so funny. I'm like, instead of helping, I'm going to go get the camera and just record this. And so it's, I also say vlogging is about knowing when to take out the camera. It's it's very hard to be like, okay, I'm going to turn the camera on and be funny and entertaining, ready, go. But it's more about like, oh, everybody's laughing right now. This is a great time to pull out the camera. You know, those moments that are just happening naturally. But with you and what we were talking about at the bathhouse is that, yeah, you can do a 30-day vlog where it's like, I'm going to do this for 30 days and you at home can follow along with me. And then it's be- then it becomes like, your YouTube channel is like a science lab where you're, you can see the results and people can follow along with you. You can have a day one, here's my protocol, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to eat only fruit for a month and let's try this and let's see how it goes. And what a better way to communicate than through video by saying, hey guys, it's day one, here we go, I'm super nervous to try this, let's do it, okay, here's my first banana. And then all of a sudden you're on day 10. <laughs> this is my 176 banana. I'm it pretty sucks. fucking sick of bananas. And then people will write in. All yeah. of a sudden you'll start getting banana recipes from all of your viewers. Like, hey, Tim, I'm doing the same thing, but here's how I eat my bananas. Right. And then all of a sudden you're having the benefit of hundreds and thousands of minds kind of networking all on the same project that you're doing, all being excited about the same thing you're excited about. So this is, I mean, this is a fun idea for me. And I, I do, I do want to come back to sort of a tactical, practical question for you. But so unbeknownst to pretty much everyone in the universe, I do have a YouTube page, but no one knows about it because it's been so neglected. I shouldn't neglect it is too loaded. I haven't been consistent because I haven't figured out a way to do it that is congruent with my wants and values and desires, but this would be congruent because it's like a a, a log of an experiment, which is what I do all the time. Anyway, I just haven't used video and uh, you guys are not here with us in my living room, but I literally have bookshelf after bookshelf after bookshelf of notebooks and it would just be a a flip in recording mechanism, right? The, uh, and I'll, I'll give a shout out and I, I had no idea before we met that you have invested in DietBet, among right. other companies. So DietBet, I have done a couple of campaigns with DietBet. Even though I have no equity in the company or anything like that, I said, okay, this is a very simple way for people to do what I have suggested for a long time, which is create incentives for yourself. It's not enough to say, I want to lose weight. 
bad goal. Like, make it specific. How many pounds? Make it measurable. Measurable. Make it rewardable or punishable. And that's where something that is as simple as a as a betting pool comes into play. So people can check out dietbet.com. But I could see, for instance, combining the video uh, log with a particular experiment that people could follow along, join me on, right? And I could see that, hello, that's okay, you're all right, we have company coming in. And simultaneously having, say, Diet Bet, and on top of that having something like Coach.me, which is a company I'm involved with, used to be Lyft for uh, sort of not only accountability, but sort of coaching for people who want it, for whatever might be going on. And uh, if I did that, so let's just say, all right, day one, day 10, day whatever it might be, would you suggest filming to edit in the sense that I'm taking multiple snapshots of each day, or is it just one portion? Because in my mind, I'm like, well, I could do, let's say, a flexibility experiment, but if it's like the same five-minute routine over 70 days, aren't people going to want to punch themselves in the face? It has to be... I think the best vlog, just like any story, has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So to me, the best way to do a daily vlog is to start in the morning and be like, good morning, it's another great day, it's March blah 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 and I'm going to do this, and I'm looking forward to this today. And then it's like they're living this sped-up day through your life, because you're going to have different things that, you know, come to you throughout the day in the process. Like whatever it is that you're you're doing, whether it's journaling, say you're trying to write in your journal every day for 30 days and you're talking about that. Um people and there's this also there's weird concept. For instance, like listening to your podcast, being a fan of your podcast, I've wondered for the longest time what it looks like in here. Yeah. Right? Like just having Mike Rowe on and he's talking about all the books that you have and you have Jocko's book over here. As a viewer, I wish I could watch some of this podcast, right? And if you were doing a daily vlog, then people get a little bit more into the aesthetic of your life. So it's like, oh, he likes, you know, Japanese uh, art and, you know, you like plants a lot. There's plants all over in this place. And and photographs and artwork of naked ladies. There are some naked ladies, one or two. (laughs) This this one over here keeps staring at me. What's your deal, lady? I'm a married man. Um, But it's just more of you, right? Like people look up to Tim Ferriss. They want to know more about Tim Ferriss. That's what you do, right? You deconstruct world-class whatevers. And so you want to know, what did you have for breakfast? Yeah. What should I have for breakfast? And that goes back to the point where I said, find somebody who you want to be like and do what they do. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what vlogging is in the sense that you are really able to tell the story of your life in a much fuller way. Mm -hmm. And there's so many times during the day where you'll think like, Oh, I want to say this or, and that's a great time to pull out the camera. And it doesn't, that's why I'm like, I said, it's, it's important to know when to pull out the camera because it's a very hard proposition to be like, okay, I'm going to turn the camera on and talk about perform. Yeah, exactly. It's like be funny and entertaining, go. And then you see a red light, like action. That's tough to do. But in those moments where you're, you know, you're introspective or you're meditating or like early in the mornings when you first wake up and you have an idea, what a better time to pop up. <laughs> or later in the mornings when I wake yeah, up. Yeah, whenever you wake up. No, no shame in no that. No judgment. I, and in fact, listening to your podcast, I know a lot of successful people get up early. And that's yeah. a problem I have had as well. And until I had kids, I 
like 10 a.m. was early for me yeah. to wake up at 10 a.m. Now you're waking up and having soccer matches at yeah, 6 Yeah, I'm morning. up at 6 a.m. every morning because there's kids jumping on my head. But, um, you know, it... It's a great way to tell a story, honestly, and and I more I mean that's what I see. That what I do is is it's just storytelling, mm-hmm. and what we were talking about earlier is you're able to analyze yourself. Like I have been able to take out speech crutches, like um, and just saying words that are useless because I edit myself and I hate myself when I'm saying these ums or whatever that you use as a speech crutch. And I think you really are able to see yourself in a way that you're not used to seeing yourself. Completely. Yeah. And so it's been very, I mean, vlogging, you know, people ask, is it healthy? Is it good? Um, it's put a mirror in front of me that's, that's made me ask myself some hard questions that I might not have done before if I wasn't editing my life every day after I lived it, you know? So it's almost like a, every day you live your life and then you sit down and you're like, I'm going to look at all of my day again. Well, it's in a way, completely analogous to what I already do in text. And quite frankly, maybe better in the respect that I use, say, the five-minute journal, right? Which uh, forces you, encourages you to focus for a few minutes in the beginning of the day and then review it and do a retrospective and takes another three to four minutes. And there's a gratitude component. There is a focus component. People can listen to my other podcast on like, it's like the five habits that help me win the morning if you want to hear more on that. But the point being, I don't have any social accountability. I don't have any external pressure, which is a good thing in my mind, to keep it up. So there are days when I miss it. But if I'm doing a daily vlog and I announce to the world that I'm going to do that, for fuck's sake, now I have to do this goddamn video. <laughs> I am forced to do the right. retrospective and look back right. at the day in a way, which I think could be very helpful. And, uh, you know, the stick in that respect, I think, is, is very underrated. Uh, the, uh, so I want to just comment on a few things because I think they're important. So the first is not caring about what people think. And I was thinking, I was, thinking to myself yesterday and sort of meditating, meditating is too lofty a word. I was just uh, trying to digest two things that I hear a lot that I've always had trouble practicing and I've begun to suspect are almost impossible. So one is live every day like it's your last. And the fact of the matter is you can't do that. It would be like, you know, whiskey and whores and like Coke and like, (laughs) you just like, you can't just start doing that. Maybe that's just me, but I apologize, everybody listening. So the, the the point being, like you have to you have to temper that as as someone with say kids or responsibilities or big long term goals with a degree of planning, right? Which by definition takes you out of the present state. So it's like how do you balance those two things? It's maybe not as simple as it would appear at face value. And as we were talking about this today, not caring about what people think, I was like, is it that? Uh, but then you said something just a few minutes ago, which is not worrying. And I was like, well, I think that's the key right there. Like you can care about what people think, but not let it stop you from experimenting, right? You can care on some level and have it be a consideration because as like social, uh, animals who have sort of evolved in tribal groups or small, uh, very small contingents, I think we're hardwired in a sense to care about hierarchy True. and so on. Because but, they, they used to kill you if they didn't like you. Yeah, right. You, or you get out of the clan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then would, you're done. They would sacrifice you. Yeah, yeah. that's then you're done. So the uh, 
All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna make a uh, public commitment here. Um, here we go. Yeah, so I I'm not gonna set a, once I start and it'll be clear. I will do a daily vlog for 30 days. The the YouTube channel, which actually has some pretty wacky cool shit out there, including like video of some of my surgeries and crazy stuff like that, uh, is just youtube.com forward slash Tim Ferriss with two, two R's and two S's. So check that out, guys. And subscribe. Oh, subscribe. Hold me accountable. Uh, so let's just Well, say, I'm going to hold you accountable right now. When are you going to start? When does your 30 days start? <laughs> when does we want to know. I want to think of a good experiment. Yeah. What can you... What so is- I'm mid-experiment right now with gymnastics. So I could record some of that and put it up, certainly, because I still suck balls at some that are really funny to watch because they're terrible. I mean, really bad. I'm, but I'm making progress, and it's very clearly visible if you see the timeline. And you would love to have that video. Like, that's another yeah. thing about now the, now, the good news is I have all the video. Oh, you do? I've okay. been filming, okay. but I haven't posted it. Uh, and I could also you know, potentially put up the commentary from coach summer who's yeah. been helping me former national team coach who's who's just on the podcast uh so let's see in terms of date uh no later i'm gonna make it this way because i want to make sure it's i want to make sure it's something i enjoy putting out no later than august 1st 2016 i will start 30 days of vlogging yeah what i was gonna suggest is it would be cool to be like what's a gymnastic move that you would love to be able to do like yeah. something that the coach has told you that like an iron cross, for instance, right? Yeah. Like up on the rings where you yeah. like do that. What I think would be cool is if you set a goal to be able to do something like that yeah. and say, I'm going to start August 1st and my goal is in 30 days, I'm going to be able to, to do, do this. move. So I actually have three specific moves that I'm targeting right now, but people are just catching me midstream. The good news is I have all the videos, so we will be able to do a retrospective. Uh, and the, the moves are for people who haven't heard the, the coach summer interview, which is, is, is worth listening to. Uh, and people can just Google this. I won't go into it right now, but is a strict press handstand, probably straddle. People can just look that up. Uh, and then front lever, and then planche, P-L-A-N-C-H, also probably a straddle planche, uh, because that's easier than a pike planche, but, or a straight-legged planche in any case. But uh, yeah, I think I could have some fun with this. And the, the appeal to me of the vlogging, honestly, out of all the things we've talked about, is using it as a additional tool in the toolkit for becoming more conscious and self-aware and present state aware. Yep. Uh, it just, it's, I've done that somewhat in audio, being able to deal with these audio ticks, some of the verbal ticks that I have, but it would be a fun way to, like you said, have, have a forcing function so that you look back at your day and have some sense of evaluation, not judgment necessarily, but evaluation where you, you're actually forcing yourself to hopefully incrementally improve bit by bit and trend in the right direction, which is what I've noticed with the gymnastics. Like if I weren't recording it and sending these videos to coach summer, it would just be, it would be infinitely harder for me to track and tweak the, the process and the progress. The accountability issue is huge it, because we always make excuses to not do something. But if you have a couple hundred thousand people who are like, 
you said you would do this, Tim. <laughs> On the days that you don't feel like doing it, and it's yeah. not to say that you don't feel like doing this, but there's, as we all know, days where you just don't feel like doing it, that right. will push you to do it anyways. And then you will grow exponentially faster because you're forcing yourself to do these things. What type of camera do you use and what software or other tools do you use to make this manageable? So my technical knowledge is fairly slim. I've always relied on my personality, but you can get a Canon G7X, which is what most YouTubers are using now, which shoots in 1080, high quality, high definition, has audio. And camera companies are really coming a long ways. They're really seeing the vlogging, I'm going to call it a culture, take off. Like, it's so weird for me to like be driving down the street and see somebody talking to a camera, which I do often now, or I'll see people in stores talking to a camera, whether they're FaceTiming or face chatting or uh, Snapchatting, face chatting. <laughs> um, for when I started doing it eight years ago, nobody was doing it. Like I would feel crazy walking around a grocery store talking to a camera. Now it doesn't bother me at all. Now I could be walking through the middle of Los Angeles International Airport and vlog you know, as I'm walking through and not even care. But if I go to my hometown Walmart, I'll feel embarrassed because I'm afraid to see somebody I know that sees me doing the vlogging thing. But yeah, I use Final Cut Pro X, which is like, you know, an easy editing software where you can import your footage and it's, you know, Apple B, use the blade tool and you just cut. So I don't have a bunch of effects. Like I have a little intro and an outro, um, you know, and those are, just best tips and practices. You should always link your content. So if you're doing 30 days of videos at the end of day one video or at the end of day two video, it's great to say, Hey, go check out yesterday's vlog. You can click right here to watch it. So those are little things that I can, you know, teach you, but yeah, you can use, I mean, the tools of the trade of creating content are so much better and easier to get now. And that's why you know, people are able to compete with Hollywood out of their bedrooms because these cameras are small, they're cheap and they're shooting as good of stuff as, you know, you see in movies sometimes or used to see, but it's like us. I mean, sitting here right now, the the gear that I have that we're using right now consists of in its entirety, a zoom H six, two XLR cables, which have existed forever. And then two SM, I think these are, SM58, sure mics, which have been around forever. You could throw these against a wall and they'd be totally fine. And this produces audio that is certainly, for podcasting purposes, more than sufficient, as long as I don't screw it up too badly on the levels. Uh, And you think, how many people are listening to this based off of this tiny little piece of technology? Like, if you're in the room with us, it's a very small recording device. And as technology speeds up through this exponential growth that we're experiencing right now, the ease of capturing that content is so much easier. Where to the extent that I've seen apps now, you know, Casey Neistat, for instance, films a lot of his vlogs on his iPhone. Like the quality on the front, on this front facing camera is so good now that you can do a lot of it on your phone and edit within your phone. And there are mics, and I have one somewhere nearby. I think it's called the Roadcaster. Yeah, just plug in there. They're that sweet. plugs right into the lightning on the iPhone. Do you, on your Canon G7X, attach any type of mic? No, I should. You can. And then there's, I hate where the microphone is. The microphone's on the top of the camera, and it kind of sucks for wind. So a lot of YouTubers will get like a little, you know, like a fuzzy thing that mm-hmm. you'd see like on the end of a boom pole or something to break up the wind. 
and they put that. But see, Canon is even now switching the mic to the front of the camera um, to compensate for that, to get the audio, because they're realizing that people are speaking to the camera, and so they're putting the microphones in different positions now. So little things like that. Like I used to have a deal with Flip. You remember Flip cameras? Yeah, back in the day, sure. That would pop out. It was owned by the Cisco Corporation. Mm-hmm. I was so mad because when YouTube first started... Flip was genius in the sense that they there was an event called YouTube Live that was here in San Francisco in 2007. Katy Perry sang, Will or Akon was there. It was like the very first big YouTube event where they invited all these YouTubers. And there was like 50 seats that they had for like, you know, the big YouTubers that they invited to this event. And on every one of those chairs was a flip camera, a brand new flip camera in a box. And all of us were like, no way. They gave us a free camera. And I used that camera so much and promoted it so often through my vlogs that the Flip company um, contacted me. They sent me like 10 of these cameras to give out. And they said, we want to do a Shea Carl Flip camera. We want you to help us design what would be the best for this camera. And I was like, okay, we need to have a a, a, a macro button. And I, like, I had all the, these ideas and they ended up going, or Cisco, for some reason, just shut down Flip. Yeah, I think it was a tax reason or something. Could have been a tax reason. Could have been an iPhone reason. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> right after so, when they were acquired, it was like six months later, the iPhone. That's, yeah, maybe that's the reason. <laughs> but I was so disappointed because I was going to have like my own flip camera. But the evolution of these personal point-and-shoot cameras has really come a long way, where for 800 bucks, this Canon G7X can do a ton of stuff. Canon... That's on me. First one's on me. Send me 10 cameras. Help me design Canon, a new Canon. come on. I want some cameras too. <laughs> Call me. <laughs> this is the epic multi-parter. Continued. We just finished acro yoga. <laughs> we got, got Shay to do flying poshi. Being flown, no, no less. I've had a lot of firsts on this trip. I yeah. had a MRI, MRI body scan. We went to the Russian baths. I just got done doing acro yoga. And it's all in between the sessions of recording the podcast. <laughs> There's a lot happening behind the scenes here. But we were talking about, at the Russian baths, uh, among other things, quotes that have motivated you and or quotes that you find very useful and i remember one you said was and correct me if i'm wrong here it's something along the lines of smart people learn from their mistakes wise people learn from other people's mistakes right are there any other quotes that you keep handy for yourself or others um i mean i love quotes like i love motivational quotes and i know that i have like a bunch that i'm like always like i love henry ford's um uh what is it whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're right. Right. I love that quote. Um, I love, you know, one of mine that I've thought of is uh, the secrets to life are hidden behind the word cliche. Mm-hmm. You know, I really always, every time I think I'm hearing a cliche, I count that as a truth. I perk my ears up. I try to listen to what's being spoken. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different trip i mean uh tips and tricks that you can try to keep yourself motivated but i don't know i i haven't thought about that right off the top of my head um well let's let's maybe come at it from a a different angle and just look thinking of tips quite a few people asked if you had any fatherhood tips for first-time dads i was telling this to tim yesterday you have to know when to walk away from a crying baby sometimes because early on it can get stressful when the babies are crying and you've 
fed them and you've changed them. And it's like, what do you want, kid? Um, I think a lot of parents stress themselves out majorly by trying to ease their kid. And sometimes you just need to let a, a baby cry in their crib because uh, it can get stressful. Uh, tips, don't let them die. <laughs> yeah, keep them alive. I always, I always joke like I've kept all five of my kids alive. That's not that's that's good percentage. Um, it's just it's hard to give like here's what I would do as a father because every situation is different, right? But I've I've learned that, and this this kind of came to me. Here's another quote that I think is true to life that I kind of realized when I had my fifth kid when Daxton came along which is, to me, the happiest state of human existence is found in loving something more than you love yourself. And no other way can you do that than through parenthood, through, you know, flesh of your flesh. And I remember being an early parent and, you know, hearing parents like, oh, I love my kids so much. And I almost felt this guilt early on because I'm like, yeah, I love my kids, but like, I don't get how people are like so connected with their kids. I'm like... I guess I don't like my kids until they're like two years old, until I can start talking and then their personality starts coming out. My wife is like, loves the little baby and like babies are cute and stuff, but I'm like, they're worthless. Look at, he's just laying there. He doesn't do anything. But why, right? Like one and a half years old when they start to talk and like walk and you see them understanding the things that you're saying, little Daxton, we have like full conversations and he can only speak like six words, but I can just tell from his body language and from things that, you know, he points at and stuff, we have like full conversations. So, um, and they'll say the funniest things. We'll be driving and my daughter, Emmy, just has this dry, quiet sense of humor and she'll drop these one-liners. I'll be like, turn on the radio and I'm like, what did you say? Brock ran in the kitchen the other day and he's like, oh, it smells so good in here. It smells better than Jesus. Or the video you showed me with the bow and arrow. Yeah. Can you explain that one? That's a viral video. We were driving home from Los Angeles to Idaho and we stopped at this gas station and there's this little toy store in the gas station and all the kids like, I want a toy. I'm like, hey, you guys can have one toy. So my little, at the time he was three and a half, uh, Brock got a bow and arrow and we're getting in the van and I'm vlogging like, you know, we're like, okay, we're headed home. And all of a sudden he's like, look at my boner. And we're like, what did you say? He's like, look, I got a boner. I'm like, no, Brock, it's a bow and arrow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that got 7 million views on YouTube. <laughs> uh, but yeah, kids do say the darndest things. It is true. And I, from the outside looking in, I mean, you seem to be a very good dad. But just to revisit that question, what... What do you think makes you different? Because well, there are a lot of shitty parents out right. there and a lot of shitty dads. What makes you different? First of all, you just got to be there for your kids, right? Like, I have seen the level of bad parenting that exists in the world just simply because of how many kids watch our channel solely as like, we're their parents because their mom and dad and some parents have to work a lot, right? So like, I'm not, if you have to send your kids to daycare or if you have to leave your kids, I understand that. Like I remember coming home and my mom had to work till four 30. So we were by ourselves when we came home, but that's why I love my job because I can be with my kids. And that really is because you can't, like, here's all the steps to being a good dad. Mostly, you just have to be there for them. Well, and there's yeah. a fine line, too, about being their friend and being like their parent. Because 
I'm my kid's friend in a sense that like we love to hang out, but when it's time to clean your room, I can be a dad and be like, no, get in there and clean your room. Like I grew up in this traditional household where you need to learn how to work. You need to get your homework done. You need to keep your room clean. You need to help out around the house. You live here too. Go pick up that trash. Go do the dishes. Help out. Like we're a team. I tell my kids like this family is a team and we all need to pitch in together and everybody needs to help. So, you know, when the house is a mess, I can turn it into dad mode. Be like, come on, every turn the TV off, turn the computer off, put that iPad away. Everybody get in here. We're gonna do 10 minutes of cleaning and I can get in that dad type tone where it's like, it's time to do what you need to do because we need to be responsible. But then I'll wrestle with them on the couch and we'll play soccer in the basement. And it's just what I think the, here's the best tip about being a parent. Remember when you were a kid, right? Think about the things that you liked when your parents did. Think about the things that you didn't like what your parents did and change those things. And I think that's a generational thing. Each generation does better or tries to do better than before. You know, I hear stories from my grandma about how poor they were, you know, and how they had to really make sacrifices to make ends meet. And it's just like each generation tries to do better. And I would say those are some good tips. Just try to remember what it was like when you were a kid mm -hmm. and uh, try to implement those things. So when you are gathering tips, ingesting information, uh, audiobooks. Do you listen to audiobooks? I love audiobooks. Are, I mean, you, li are you listening to anything right now or most recently? Um, I mean, I have loved listening to anything Dale Carnegie. Um, mm -hmm. How to Win Friends and Influence People is a staple that I've listened to three or four times. Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill are how to, amazing. How to Stop Worrying and Start Living yep. by Dale Carnegie, you also a huge winner. I just winner. downloaded that. I haven't listened to that yet. I yeah, need to listen to I haven't to that. listened to it, but I've read it several times. It is on my bookshelf about 12 feet to my right and uh, sits there as a constant reminder that it's kind of like the break in case of break glass in case of emergency book book yeah <laughs> well because a lot of times you need to be reminded of that stuff like you'll go and you listen to those books you'll be like oh yeah why am i not doing that i know that when i do those things i feel happier there's just little things that we like we talked about earlier where humans are prone to follow the path of least resistance and if we're not conscious about our decisions and we're not every day making you know, specific choices to become better will slowly start to slide down. We will get worse. So you have to be conscious every day of what am I going to do with my life? How do I want my life to be? What kind of person do I want to be? And just having those conversations with you. But I love audiobooks. Anytime I can multitask, mow on the lawn. I listen to your podcast all the time. Um, I have an Audible subscription. I listen to Audible, any audiobooks I can find. Any other podcasts that you really enjoy listening to? Um, I like the Joe Rogan podcast. I listen to uh, Hank and John Green. They have a podcast. They give dubious advice. They're YouTubers. Uh, I really look Impressive up to guys. those guys. I mean, writers yeah, also and creators of VidCon, right? Yep. They created VidCon. They've created the site. There's They have a science channel, like all kinds of, you know, intellectual content, smart stuff. Like they're brothers that uh, I call John Green an intellectual dreamboat. He's, is John, uh, no, John, he's the I author. Always, he's the author of The, the, the Fault in Our Stars, Stars correct. which was turned into a Looking movie. Looking for Alaska. Um, he's done a, a couple others. And Hank is in a band. He kind of runs VidCon and uh, they both have a collaborative channel called The Vlog Brothers. Smart dudes who like you can trust. You know, like, you know, 
like they do a project for awesome every year where they like the last couple of years raised over a million dollars for charities around the world. Yeah, so I'm very earnest podcast. guys. Yeah. And, uh, very forthcoming with the lessons they've learned also True. from what I've seen. And that's why I love their podcast. Cause they really, I was going to actually open my podcast thing here. I love this American life. I listen to Mark Marin. Uh, I like, uh, when the kids go to sleep, that's my podcast. WTKGTS, check it out. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yours mostly. I've been listening to yours a lot. I found you uh, through, through Joe Rogan. Oh, Joe, Joe Rogan, Rogan tweeted right. the Jocko podcast, and that's when I really started uh, to listen to you. But yeah, I think aggregating your timeline too is a great thing. What I mean by that is I try to follow people on purpose so I will be forced to see things on Twitter that will motivate me. So, Or things that I'm like, what's what can i learn new so like i'll 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 follow nasa and all these you know there's a facebook oh i really wanted to tell this to your audience there's a facebook page that has some of the coolest technological videos you'll see on the internet and it's called um oh my heck i got it hashim al galil maybe we can put it in the show notes but we put it in the show notes how do you spell it it's h-a-s-h-e-m capital a-l dash g-h-a-i-l-i and um some of the if you want to be on the cutting edge of you were telling me about one with the water coming out of a spigot that then has sound waves a particular of a particular frequency pushed through it. I haven't seen this video yet. And then the water basically mimics. It takes on the, the property of the sound wave. Yeah, yeah. it's so, that sounds There's incredible. There's just things that you're like, that seem science fiction, but you go to this guy's Facebook page and like, we're talking like printing skin, printing body parts. There's some really cool stuff that's happening. And if you want to be on the cusp of knowing what's happening technologically, I'd get on that Facebook cool. page and check it I'll out. I'll put that in the show notes also. What is the book you've given most as a gift? You know, I've listened to your podcast so many times and I wanted what my answer previously was and what I recommend all the time is Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University, which is it's a practical book. Financial Peace University. University. P-E-A-C-E. Um, yeah, yeah. Peace. And it's just about getting out of debt, cutting up your credit cards. Like that concept freed me up early on in my marriage and in my career um, to do things like move to Los Angeles and start this crazy company called Maker Studios. Because I didn't have debt, because I didn't have all these bills, I didn't have a car payment, I didn't have a... a well, I did. I did have car payments and student loans and all of that stuff. Because I read one of the very first books I ever read was Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm-hmm. And that was all about OPM, use other people's money, leverage other people's time. And you talk a lot about that in the 4-Hour work week. But to me, it was it was so stressful to have debt. And it was like... Not if you could afford that, but could we fit that monthly payment into our budget? Mm-hmm. You know, we bought furniture, 90 days, same as cash, all that rat race stuff. By getting out of all of that, it freed me up to have the courage to try something new. So I always recommend Dave Ramsey and his books. But if I think about it, the book that I've given out the most is the Book of Mormon because I was a missionary for two years and that's all I did is pass that book out. And I think it has value, whether you believe it, it's scripture, like the, the Latter-day Saints believe, or if it's just a made-up book that was written by Joseph Smith. There's stories in there that really will help you learn how to have faith in yourself, have faith in something greater than you, have hope in the future of an eternal life. 
Um, so here's a question for you. So I was thinking when you mentioned sort of the truth behind the cliche, I was thinking about parables also, right. and books like The Alchemist, yep. books like uh, Siddhartha from by Herman Hesse, and the impact they can have, lasting impact they can have on people. If someone who has uh, a non-believer would like to read a part of the Book of Mormon that you think could have uh, an impact on them despite their lack of theology, uh, is there anything in particular that you would point them to? There is a chapter, I believe it's Alma... I could have to, I sh- I'm a bad Mormon, I should know this. Alma 2, I'm looking up on my phone right now. There's a prophet by the name of Alma, which I think is, the reason I'm going to suggest this is because it's actually a science experiment that you can do on spirituality. Mm-hmm. Where in this, um, it's like a parable, well, it's a, a story in Alma 2 where he talks about, at least if you don't believe in God, the first place to start is have a hope that there's a God. Um, I just think like, well, what if you could make up whatever you wanted and it was true, which obviously is, you know, not what I'm suggesting, but to me, when I'm like, have a crisis of faith where I'm like, what if God doesn't exist? Like, what if this is all made up? What if we die and we're just worm food? Like that stresses me out to think about that because I feel I've worked so hard on my relationships with my wife, with my kids, building this family, for it to end in dust isn't okay with me, right? Even to the point where, <laughs> this is where I've, I've said to people, if you don't believe in God, you should believe in the technology that's going to make us immortal. Because that Facebook page that I was just explaining, it lends to immortality for humans like in the next 10 to 20 years where we can print off organs, we can 3d print livers, you know, we can embed chips into our body now. Like we're getting into all that kind of stuff. So to me, that doesn't contradict God. To me, all knowledge is, is, is God's knowledge. You know, like we need to learn everything there is. And if he created our bodies, then we're going to slowly learn how to create artificial intelligence. Well, there's all, and I mean, the, living in Silicon Valley too, uh, I know people who are doing some pretty out there stuff. I mean, in the name of like Ponce de Leon's Fountain of Youth or Immortality, uh, they're all Transcendent Man. Yeah, Transcendent Man. Um, Ray, Ray, Kurzweil Ray Kurzweil is a favorite documentary of mine. And, uh, and I was, so I've, <laughs> I was an advising faculty member for a period of time for Singularity University at, based at NASA yeah. Ames. And uh, so you have the pills, you got the potions, you have stuff like metformin for extending life. You also have people who are looking at blood transfusions with younger people, which is very interesting. So replacing their own like blood vampire, vampire style. Stuff, yeah. Uh, and it just goes on and on. Stem cell stuff, regeneration of destroyed connective tissue, which is something I'm experimenting with right now with some very uh, off-label medical compounds, we'll call them. Is that what you call uh, them? That's what I'll call them for now. Uh, that, that's a separate conversation. So you mentioned uh, tr- uh, Transcendental Man as one of your favorite documentaries. So let, let's go there. What are some of your favorite documentaries or movies? Um, yeah, uh, Transcendent Man was very interesting to me. Um, I'm a huge Morgan Spurlock fan. Um, he just helped me make a documentary that we're working on. Well, it just premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival. It's called Vlogumentary. It's a documentary of this YouTube world and how creators like me have made a living making videos on the internet. 
Um, so I'm a big Morgan Spurlock fan. Um, Forks Over Knives, is if you want to get into health, um, is a great documentary. I'm sure everybody's been on Netflix. What's the other one that's like that, Forks Over Knives? Um, well, there are a bunch. There are a bunch. Yeah, this gets into some heated territory pretty quickly. But uh, the, you're, are you talking about the sort of vegetarian oriented documentaries there's, yeah, there's another like, one that i haven't seen because i think the garrison therapy what is uh well there's one called cowspiracy oh yes <laughs> like conspiracy but my like my point my ask of creators would be if you want to <laughs> if you want to persuade people with an argument who are not uh, part of the choir. In other words, you're not preaching to the converted. Do not name your documentary Cowspiracy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just not going to be able to take that seriously. Uh, unfortunately, there might be good stuff in it, but it's just, it's, that's, that's not how you use a honeypot to convert the hard to convert. Right. Uh, that's a silly name. but, uh, any other, any other docs or movies that come to mind? Um, Dude, I'll tell you a movie that's coming out that I saw at the Sundance Film Festival. I don't know when it's coming out, but it's called Captain Fantastic with Viggo Mortensen. Okay. And it's a story about a father who is kind of sick of society. And he takes his, well, the mom and the wife of the family has passed away. And I won't tell you how. And she, and so he takes his kids into the forest and they like live off the land. And he teaches his kids everything he knows. He has all these books. And part of the movie is like, you know, he doesn't want to go back into society. Anyways, I saw it at Sundance. I bawled my eyes out. Look for it in theaters. I don't know when it's even coming out. Captain but it's called Fantastic. Captain Fantastic. Viggo Mortensen is the Sounds father like in it. Sounds like kind of my ultimate fantasy, aside from the family members uh, passing away It's like away Swiss Family Robinson in today. Uh, it's really cool. Like the opening scene is them chasing a deer down wow. and killing it to, for food. Amazing. Yeah, I, I need to see that. Uh, what $100 or less purchase, doesn't? We, we, we can fudge that a little bit, uh, has most positively impacted your life in recent memory? That's a good question. I didn't think about an answer to that one. $100 or less, it probably, it, you know... It could be more. I mean, it's, it's, it's flexible. Like, what purchase I, that I is not say, outside of everyone else's reach... Uh, this is a little more pricey than that, but the boosted board, the electric skateboard, yep. which is more like $900, but, um, they have a few different models. Yeah. You can get, so you can get those, cheaper ones. So I also have a boosted board in my garage and, uh, what I decided was the most fun for me on the boosted board. I'd like to hear your opinion, but the boosted board, I also put in this crazy, quarterly box you can check out quarterly this company that sends out quarterly boxes that people can subscribe to but i created the boxes usually cost like a hundred dollars to subscribe and i was like you know what i want to do a holiday mega box that's like five grand i don't remember it was like 1500 or five grand and just filled it it was a it's two huge like raiders of the lost ark crates and they included a boosted board no way. <laughs> uh, but what i realized for myself is that i like the sensation because it's so odd of carving uphill. Yeah. Because the board can go, what, They're 22 strong. miles an hour? Yeah. And you can, they're longboard effectively, and you have a hand controller that allows you to accelerate or decelerate. That's the other cool thing. Like going downhill, you can break. Yeah. And, and charge it like, battery. like yeah. a Prius. Yep. And uh, yeah, the boosted board's awesome. You have to be careful. And when you start, do not start on the highest speed setting because it will shoot out from underneath you. And when you do start, 
you need to get into like a power stance. <laughs> they scare me. Yeah, that's a fair warning. If you get a boosted board, do not kill yourself because. And I think they make it hard to turn it on the fastest. It comes auto default to the slow setting, right? And because I was trying to turn it up to the fast setting, I'm like, how do I? I had to get into yeah. the instructions, like, yeah. figure it out. Which but, is yeah, good. Which is powerful. Good. Yeah, get a helmet, and you're. If you're someone like me, you know, 38, and I got on it, and suddenly I like reverted to my 12 year old self, and I'm like, oh yeah, I totally used to do this. <laughs> Don't get too carried away with that emotion. Uh, Here's what I would say: unless you can run 23 miles an hour. Be very careful because <laughs> yeah. if you're going to hit a rock or something and yeah. if you're going 22 miles an hour, you're going to eat your face. Uh, the reason I bring up the boosted board is because I'm just so excited about the power of batteries. Batteries are getting so much stronger. You see with all those hoverboards that all the YouTubers are riding, now these electric skateboards that can take you up a hill. That's magic to me. Like me and my brother growing up, it's like if we could have had something like that, we'd have gotten in so much trouble. You probably wouldn't even be sitting here. <laughs> I would not. I would definitely have injured Since myself. Since you're the guy who does backflips on skis. On skis, and- yeah. And we were talking yesterday where I think the evolution of that with how many quadcopters we're seeing, I really think we're on the cusp of a personal battery-powered quadcopter where you can kind of get in this little self encapsulated helicopter dome and fly around with just have a harness yeah i don't see i don't in fact if you go on youtube right now you can see a guy who has built a platform out of these quadcopters and he can stand on it with a hand control and fly standing on top of like six quadcopters that he built out of this platform so it's gonna get real jetson like here pretty soon it's coming in the next five years uh now i usually ask about morning rituals but it might involve, well, it sounds like Zeke, your giant, your great Dane staring straight down into your face until like anxiety and sixth sense wakes you up or kids jumping on you. I don't know, but do you have any particular rituals that are important to you and your family in the first, say 60 to 90 minutes of waking up? Definitely. Um, and it, it's only evolved, you know, since like my three oldest are all in school now, but I used to sleep in, like till 10 or 11. But I, it, it's rare if I'm in bed after 8 a.m. now because either Zeke is with his giant Great Dane snout right in my face with his stinky breath or the kids are running in, you know? And, you know, two out of seven days of the week, we have a kid that ends up sleeping with us because they had a nightmare or something. And I'll just wake up and there's a kid in our bed because they came in during the middle of the night. But we pray every morning before the kids go off to school, we kneel down as a family and we say a prayer. And whether you think that's crazy or not, I mean, think about just the aspect of having kids. Because in the prayer, we say what we're grateful for. We're thankful for our health. We're grateful for our house. We're grateful for each other. Help us to be kind. Help us to be loving. And we say these words and we take turns. And I, you know, I'll say, Gavin, we say the prayer this morning. Avia, we say the prayer this morning. And that's one thing that my wife and I have tried to focus on before we send our kids out the door every morning is we want to have a family prayer. We'll kneel down and sometimes it's seven in the morning and I'm still asleep and they'll come in to say the morning prayer and I'm still laying in bed and they'll all just like kneel at the foot of the bed and I'll get up and like roll over like, okay, I'm ready to pray. I'm ready. And we'll say our little morning prayer. And I think it just gives us a good tone. It helps my kids have an eternal perspective, which I think all people should have. We should always be conscious of, we came from somewhere. Now we're here on this earth, and then we're going to go somewhere, um, which is 
I guess your next rapid fire question, if I could put anything on a billboard, what would it be? No, look at you. Yes. You're going to die someday. Or maybe I just have it say, you're going to die. And that seems gruesome, but having a healthy understanding, and my grandpa taught me this. My grandpa would always talk about um, when he died. In fact, he bought his coffin five years before he actually died. And so he would, when people would come over, he would take them down into the garage and show them his coffin. (laughs) And I remember like getting in it, you know, so like I've been in my grandpa's coffin and teaching them that like death isn't um, something to be feared, but you know, life should be lived to the fullest because you're going to die. And I just love conversations like that because to me, that's what has real meaning. Because to me, the things that matter the most last the longest. And to me, families are forever. I believe that my wife and I will be joined in holy matrimony for all time and eternity. In um, you know traditional wedding ceremonies, you hear until death do you part. And I'm like, bullshit. No, why would you part at death? Um, so that's kind of where I come at it, you know, and that's what I teach my kids. I, I teach them that I married this beautiful, you know, daughter of God who I cherish and who is their mother. And I even so far, my relationship to my wife is so important to me that, and I don't want my kids to know that she's a priority over them, but my wife and I's relationship isn't more important than my kids and I relationship, but they need to know how strong that is. They need to see that mom and dad are solid. And so a lot of times me and Colette consciously make decisions to not let our kids come between us. So we never do the like, go ask your mom, go ask your dad. It's like me and her need to come up with a decision and we are a united front that then goes and informs the kids on if they can do such and so such. So some of the 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 strongest families that I've encountered in the last five to ten years are really explicit about what you just said. But they would they would they would perhaps in some cases say like my relationship with my wife or my husband comes first, yeah. and then my relationship with my kids because it prevents that uh, mutiny from breaking out or right. that like dissension in the ranks. But where mom said, yeah, all of that, which right. then turns it it creates a really I think. Sort of uh, not caustic isn't the right word. Insidious, uh, it plants an insidious seed that can uh, that can cause all sorts of problems later. But that's that's something that I've seen over and over yeah. again with the the marriages or families that seem to work, which at least where I live is in the minority. Sadly, I mean, family is on the decline. I think the the foundation to our society is the family. Like we all, whether you like it or not all come from a family. We are all from a mother and a father, whether you know who that person is or not. Um, but I do. I mean, I'm softening saying this now because I don't want to like offend my kids or like make people think I don't love my kids. But yeah, like my relationship with my wife is way more important because guess what? The kids are going to leave. They're going to turn 18 and leave the house. And then it's just going to be me and my wife. So if if we've let them come between us and all of a sudden the kids are out of the house and it's like, oh, we don't have a very good relationship because you know the kids have like drove this wedge between us all these years. Uh, it's going to be a, cr- a crappy situation. So, me and my wife's relationship is most important, and I think our kids know that. You got married at age. Remind me, twenty two. Twenty two. What advice would you give your twenty five year old self? I was listening to the last podcast with Mike Rowe and. 
hindsight, I say, is not 2020. It's 4K. Hindsight is 4K for the internet kids out there. Uh, but you, at 25, where was I when I was 25? We had just had our first kid. I think Colette was pregnant. That's right when I dropped out of college. Uh, maybe I would have said drop out of college sooner. <laughs> um, but I don't think I would change anything. I think I agree with Mike Rowe in the sense that I would tell myself, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Um, things are going to work out. And I love that question because it's like, it's easy to think, well, what would I tell my 25-year-old self? So then I think, well, if I'm 45 and I'm asked that question, what would I tell my 36-year-old yeah. self? This is something I think about a lot, actually. Right. And I actually journal one of, sorry, I'm, I'm hijacking this for a second just because uh, I've had a lot of, I've had a little, a lot of priority. But the, so one of the p- only pieces of writing that I've lost that made me really, really sad for an extended period of time was I sat down and I wrote a short story and realized only afterwards it was very similar to this piece written by Borges, but where I sat down and with ended up seated across the table from a stranger uh, and it turned out to be my future self. Wow. And so I asked them for advice and they gave me advice. And it was a fun story, but I also, I mean, this sounds so kind of weird but got a lot of good advice just by going through the exercise right and i was like that's odd i don't know what i just did there it seems like a a, like a a kind of a a really funky magic trick but what so what would your that's what i I mean what you just explained is exactly what i was going to suggest is think about how old you are right now and think about being a 10 year older version of yourself and then think what would I probably tell myself as an older version of myself? And that is the wisdom that I think you found in that exercise. Um, You know, Stephen Covey says, you know, begin with the end in mind. Um, And so I think having this eternal perspective where you're thinking about the timeline of your life, where you came from, where you're going, who you want to become you can kind of like delve into certain moments in that timeline and specifically the past because you can see where you've come from. But just thinking futuristically in the sense where, okay, what am I going to, you know, what are probably my suggestions to myself in five years from now? And then start living those things. I think you're going to exponentially, you know, grow faster than you would have. It's all about measuring, right? It's all about a measured life, about being conscious of your decisions, about looking at your attitudes, about what you think. Talking about books, I mentioned earlier, As a Man Thinketh is to me one of the most powerful books that you can read. And it's short. It's like 100 pages. And there's so much truth in the fact that everything that you do physically starts as a thought in your mind. So if you don't want to become whatever, don't think about those things. And if you find that you're thinking about a certain thing, that's going to manifest itself physically eventually. So your thoughts are are a very... And sometimes people get crazy thoughts, right? Like sometimes you might think you're crazy because of all the stuff that comes in your mind, but you have to be conscious and it takes self-discipline. Well, I think part of the development of that discipline, I mean, for me, it's been uh, morning meditation practice, but also been the developing, or I should say rather practicing the role of observer as opposed to being 
trapped in yourself and run by your emotions and not being aware of them or observing them, an exercise like taking 10 minutes to write down what your 45-year-old self, like in my case, right, or 50-year-old self, would say to me now, mm-hmm. gives me a degree of separation where I can look somewhat objectively, like step off the roller coaster ride that is my life and be like, that's a fucking weirdly designed roller coaster. Like, <laughs> hold on here. Why did the architect do it that way? We should really like change this turn. People are going to definitely going to get sick on turn four. Let's right. fix that. And uh, another way that I do that, I mean, I'm not particularly religious, so I don't have a like, what would you, what would Jesus do bracelet or anything? But I have a handful of friends who are very highly developed in ways that I am not. Right. So I have friends who are very zend out and effective in high-stress circumstances. I'm very good at doing that in crises. Mm-hmm. I'm not so good with the small things. I get uh, really riled up by the little things. And so I might say, uh, ask myself, you know, what would Matt Mullenweg, this is a friend of mine who's, who's uh, really impressive on a lot of levels, like, what would Matt Mullenweg do in this situation? Like, how would fill in the blank, right? How would right. Eric Weinstein think about right. this? And if I'm overreacting and feeling myself slip into a negative state, I'm like, let me hit pause here. How would these other people I know really well respond to this right now? Like, What would their advice be to me? Right. And I find that is an extremely helpful exercise, which takes practice. So you get into the habit of doing it. So uh, speaking of that, vlogging is great practice because yeah. when you're editing yourself, you are watching yourself. And that is exactly what you need to do when you talk about becoming an observer of yourself. Mm-hmm. Because when you're in your mind, you like make excuses for yourself, right? Where like, well, I'm, or maybe you're not even conscious of some of the things that you're doing or saying, or if you're rude to somebody, maybe you, you don't even realize that you're doing that. But if you're able to step out of your body in a sense and look at yourself from a third person point of view, which is, I've been able to do much more because I've edited myself for so long. I'm able to see the things that I'm saying and then tell myself, you shouldn't say that because of this and this and this. It's hard to explain, but like almost try to picture, you know, as you sit there, close your eyes and imagine that you are standing behind yourself and that you're looking at the back of your head. And that is a practice that you can do to kind of help pull yourself out and become an observer of your life. And that's when I think there's power to be like, well, I shouldn't have done that. This is good. I should do that. And then, you know, you can be the architect of your roller coaster and you can change turn three. Well, that's uh, also the detachment that Jocko talks about. Very similar approach. Well, this has been really fun, Shay. I'm glad you came here to, uh, to acro yoga and... Russian bath and and do it all. <laughs> uh, is there any ask or request for my audience? Anything you'd like them to consider, think on uh, before we get to where they can find you and all that good stuff? I mean, I just, it's the same conversation that we've been having is um, take a look at your life, you know, and know and have hope that you can make it whatever you want it to be. And then just go about you know, the task of doing it. And it's through hard work, through reading, through experience. The real success is in the doing of the thing. So you can say and listen to a bunch of stuff, but an act to make action, to do stuff, to get up early, to, you know, make your bed, doing the hard things 
is what will bring you success. So get used to work and fall in love with it. You know, find those things that you hate and find those things that you dread and embrace them. And once you do that, there's no fear left because you've kind of allowed yourself to go into the dark. And, and it reminds me of one quick story. I remember when I was working at the granite shop, dude, 4.30 was the worst time of day because those last 30 minutes would just drag on and I would stare at the clock like 30 more minutes, 29 more minutes, 28 more minutes. You've done it in school or you've watched the little hand move slowly. And one day I was like, why am I just dreading this last 30 minutes every day? It sucks to hate like we talked about, hate this 30 minutes of my life. And so I remember one day where I was like, I'm just going to clean this shop. I'm going to turn on some music in this last 30 minutes. I'm just going to clean this shop. And I hated cleaning this shop because it was a mess. And all the other guys would just throw silicone tubes on the ground. It would piss me off. So I just started going to work. I just started working. And all of a sudden, I looked up at the clock, and it's 545. I'm like, I just stayed 45 minutes past. So quit procrastinating. Dive into the hard stuff. And allow yourself to make a mistake. Like you're going to mess up and just never quit. Keep going. Get started. That's it. All right, my friend. So where can people find you? What are you up to? What would you like them to check out? I'm uh, Shay Carl on all the social medias. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Shay Carl. I just wanted to talk about a website called Social Blue Book that I'm really excited about right now. That's like the thing I'm really excited about blowing up right now. It's a place that influencers can go to find their value. If you find yourself with 5,000 Twitter followers and there's a brand that wants to pay you to promote their product and you have no idea what to charge them, uh, you can go to socialbluebook.com and you can uh, log in you know, through your Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and they'll give you real values of what your tweets are worth. If you made a video for somebody promoting a product, it'll, it'll give you um, your value based on statistics like watch time, thumbs up, comments, interaction. And um, it also has a great tool where you can submit or brands, if you're a creator, can submit brand deals to you. And there's a whole form where you can just type in you know, the ask. Uh, check it out. If you're an influencer, it's a great tool to negotiate with brands. Socialbluebook.com is really cool. Everybody listening, as always, links to books mentioned, channels mentioned, pages, etc. will be found and can be found in the show notes. So visit that uh, for all of the delightful things we discussed at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast, all spelled out. And uh, as always, and until next time, thank you for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. 
It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. 